Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Austin Kopic and Kelly Surtees about the astrological forecast for June of 2020. Uh, today is May 27th, 2020, starting at 11.25 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. I believe this is going to be the 257th uh, episode of the show. And um, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So hey, guys, welcome back. Hey. 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 All right. So for those watching this on YouTube, uh, we're going to spend probably the first hour like recapping the past month, talking about some recent news and events. And then about an hour into the show, we'll probably jump into the forecast for June. So if you want to jump straight to the forecast, then just look at the description below this video or on the description page for the audio uh, on the Astrology Podcast website, and you'll find a timestamp to jump straight to the forecast. Uh, but otherwise, stick around and we will talk about some other astrology-related news and events for the, the next hour. So first things first, we are just coming off of a wildly successful um, online astrological conference, the one of the big conferences of the year, which is the Northwest Astrological Conference. It was scheduled to happen in Seattle over Labor Day weekend as an in-person conference. It was going to be the 36th annual conference, but due to what happened with the pandemic, obviously it was the the in-person conference was canceled and it was moved online. So you guys both headlined this conference and did amazingly well, and the conference itself was, I think, an overwhelming and almost surprising success. I would say, right? Well, was... Kelly headlined. <laughs> Kelly headlined. Well, Kelly did well, the keynote. I don't. Yeah, I think it was. There's a yeah. lot of shared billing, but yes, um, I did give the opening keynote. But I know Lynn Bell gave a keynote that was also well received. I think Stephen Forrest and Sam Reynolds also gave keynotes. So yeah, there was a few. But it was definitely yeah. successful. There was more than twice the amount of attendees there, I think, online than would normally be there in person. Sure. So it was like usually there's like three, four hundred attendees tops if it's maxed out in person, but this was uh, at least six hundred people were watching your keynote live. I remember Kelly at the beginning. And overall, when you factor in Speakers and everything else, it was upwards of eight or nine hundred people. Yeah, yeah, and the the you know that was really evident um, in the number of people at each talk. You know, having yeah. having spoken at Norwalk, uh, I don't know once before, twice, I guess two or three times before, um, and attended many other times. You know, we're all used to what the you know how many people are in a room and seeing right. the numbers in the digital you know in the online lectures is like oh there are 147 people here which is uh unheard of right you know that it, that would be i mean what do you think the biggest normal lecture in for the in-person norwac is like maybe if you get 80 people that's uh i believe the term is fuck ton right if you're doing it live <laughs> at the hotel yeah, and like a normal lecture, and even like best case scenario, if you're giving a keynote in like the full ballroom where they've opened up like all of the rooms, that's only that's a maximum of what like 300 people, probably not even 400 tops in person. So this was just way astronomically high. Um, I couldn't get over what a great manifestation, and in a 10 minute talk mm. I gave, what a great manifestation of this was of Saturn and Aquarius. Because we've all seen that with the, um, you know, the the virus, and then the need for social distancing, and then the quarantines and the lockdowns, and everybody being 
separated and like social contact being cut off. But then all of a sudden, as a result of that, people pushing to find other ways to connect and socialize and platforms like Zoom, like we're using right now in order to like talk with each other, becoming much more popular on every level of society, both for social reasons, but also for things like schools or for um, classes or for like like yoga groups or just just about everything. And Norwak, when Saturn stationed uh, at one degree of Aquarius this month in May, and Norwak being the first time that a major in-person astrological conference that's been around for 30 years suddenly was moved online successfully and seeing the dynamics of that was really striking to me in terms of this transit. I was I was attributing a lot of that to like an early manifestation of Saturn in Aquarius. Were you guys noticing that as well? Is this yeah, fitting in with well, your Saturn and Aquarius anticipations? Well, I think there are a couple things. One, yes, Saturn and Aquarius, but especially Saturn and Aquarius in a square with Uranus. You know, it, this wasn't a gentle move online. Right. This was the result of a significant disruption. Yeah. Um, but the uh, it, it, we also can't ignore the. Um, multitude of planets that were in Gemini at the time. Um, as Kelly mentioned in her keynote, the um, you know, which I thought was quite brilliant, Kelly, the thinking about Venus retrograde in Gemini, which is one of our themes for June, um, but started in the middle of May, as figuring out different ways of relating and figuring out how to relate um, you know, in different conditions, in different sort of languages of relating. I think those, the, how should we say, both the successful adaptations as well as the inherent challenges um, were a big part of the Norwak experience. Hugely so, hugely so. I was, one thing, in addition to what you're both saying, which I completely agree with, I realized I had never actually seen the birth chart for the Norwak conference, which I think, Chris, you displayed in your talk. Right. And that was really striking because it has, I think, an early Leo, like one or two degrees of Leo rising. So not only was mm. Saturn stationing in early Aquarius, but it was directly triggering the descendant in this particular chart. And to your point, Austin, yeah, it wasn't like Laura decided a year ago, let's try online and see what happens. She made this decision at the end of March, which was only two months' notice to really like it's a very Uranus Saturn thing of like pivoting very quickly, changing, you know, tact or goal mid midstream and doing a lot of renegotiation, but also a huge amount of setup. You know, there was no uh, technological infrastructure for this in the middle of March, but somehow they managed to get the right people in to do everything that was necessary that you know, not only was it a great feeling, but there were, it was my experience as a presenter, it was very smooth technologically. Uh, I don't know if that was the same for everybody. Um, but it was, uh, was very consistent, very easy. Yeah. They pulled it off pretty well. There's no major mishaps. There were, of course, um, figuring out how to have the social component that you're missing from an in-person conference online was one of the challenges. And there were Certainly, some things still to be worked on, but it was interesting seeing how some of that could still be possible, and you could still have connections between people, um, even at a distance, um, and create a sense of community and in individual connections between people through the live chats. Like the live chats during the conference was one of the most interesting things for me, because even though we're used to that, for example, 
here where we have an audience of about 116 people who are patrons that are watching us record this episode live and sort of interacting, seeing that in a conference format and seeing people like talking about what the presenter was was presenting live was new and not typical because typically you're all sitting in a lecture room together just sort of like taking in the lecture and occasionally there'll be like a question or a Q&A or something like that but it's somewhat limited this was like an ongoing uh discussion where like Sam Reynolds likened it to like almost being able to hear each other telepathically as you're sitting in the le- lecture room together yeah, and that's a unique feature to and being online because you would never get the chance to express those thoughts midstream if you're participating to a lecture, listening to a lecture live, for instance. Right. And do you both think that that was primarily a good thing? Because a number of people complained about not being able to focus on the lectures because literally a hundred other people were just narrating their thoughts. I do think there was some challenges with it. I would agree. Um, Even as a speaker, I noticed this at one point in my keynote where I actually had to hold my notes above the chat box because I just wanted to stay in my zone without, I guess, because I'm used to teaching online where there's a level of interaction. I just had to remind myself, just deliver your thoughts and ideas here, Kel. You don't have to you know, be interacting in the way that you normally would. So I think there was just a little bit of, I had to just slightly adjust my approach um, because I I did hear some feedback that some people found it quite distracting. And I I just found it useful afterwards. Like I did close, I only did like a 10 minute talk, so I didn't get the full experience that you guys did, but I closed it during that and then went back and looked after in order to see how people were reacting to the talk sort of after the fact. And I found it useful for that or in some talks it was a little bit more obnoxious than in other talks where the audience was a little bit more low key or there were interesting insights that were coming through the chat but it could it could be a mixed bag yeah and it, it's tricky cuz um people do want to connect and they do want to interact and it everybody has a different level of desire for that connection while they're learning some people prefer to have the constant connection and other people prefer just to soak in you know, one thing at a time. Um, and I guess it was just, we just, everyone had to make different choices about how to manage that for themselves. Right. That's definitely one yeah, area I, certainly to work on in the future and whatever online conferences, or if, if we ever did something, we've always talked about doing like an in-person thing, but figuring out how to have that social component for an online meeting is, is super crucial. When there were, there were lots of shared uh, sort of breakout rooms and they did sort of a, I don't know, collective, almost a wandering the halls of the hotel type, uh, type shared room as well, so, mm. which I thought was good, you know, to make, uh, to make space for a discussion and whatnot outside of, you know, a formal presentation. Yeah. But, and shout know, out to so part- West Arteray, who actually went to the hotel and did a live stream from the hotel for us, for those that were missing it and got nostalgic about this hotel that Norwalk has been at for like 20 or 30 years. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which is yeah. Um that that likely the most remarkable thing about that hotel is that Norwalk has happened there. Um but you know the so just back to the 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 sort of chat component which is not present when you're giving a talk online. Um people a few people might whisper or excuse me which is not present when you're giving a talk in person. Um that would have been very different if the class sizes were not huge. That's true. Right? If it's That's like true. you were saying, Kelly, you know, um, 
it's one thing if you've got like 30 people or whatever, and some of them are chatting, you can like track the chat as a speaker and integrate some of what's coming up and it can be really helpful. But when you've got like a tight hour, 15 minutes, um, you know, and you're trying to cram it all in there and there are like 140 people, um, and there's lots of stuff that you couldn't possibly cover. And there's lots of off topic stuff. Um, it, it it's different. It, it becomes, um, a liability rather than at than an asset to have all of that um not dialogue because it's not two people but uh, uh multi-log uh just scrolling by you sure yeah yeah um so let's not get stuck on this for too long what uh, were there any other things before we move on about norwak that you guys want to mention that were notable or important i saw some amazing i didn't see a ton of talks because honestly i was preparing for mine like i usually am which unfortunately it was on the very last day so of course i'm like preparing all the way until Halfway the through the, the third and final day. Um, but I have one of the cool things about this being an online conference is that they, when you bought a ticket, it also gave you two weeks of access after the conference was over to go back and watch any lecture that you want. So I've been going back and catching up. Um, I did get to see Bear Rivers talk live on intersectionality and astrology, which I thought was amazing. I've gone back and watched um, Diana Rose Harper's talk on natal astrology as radical self-care, which I thought was really good and interesting. And I'm interested in talking to them both on the podcast at some point. I started watching um, Caitlin Kopik's talk on astrology and magic yesterday, and that was amazing. And I was just telling you, Austin, before we started recording that I wish she had traveled, came with you. She decided not to come with you in the trip last uh, December or last November because um, otherwise she would have been a great addition to that talk we did on astrology and magic. So hopefully at some point we can do mm -hmm. that again in the future. She has crazy design skills. You were mentioning about her PowerPoint just being off off the wall. Yeah, in making me feel terrible about everything I've ever done in that format. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> making all of us, I mean. <laughs> showing, showing us up. Um, yeah, yeah, so I saw some really great talks. Um, did you guys see any good talks or anything that stood out for you in terms of lectures? I I literally didn't see anything except Kate's. Um, I was like you. I was working sort of up to the last minute on everything, and I just um, as a brief aside, one of the things I thought was really interesting is that I could. It felt like conference energy, like super stimulating, potentially fragmenting, but like very up conference, like energy, like there's a, there's a, there's a certain positive mania that you get from, um, conferences. And I was surprised that by, you know, just, uh, tuning in via my computer, I could like connect to that. And that was good, right. but I actually needed to shield myself from that. So I could focus on my, my little things that I was supposed to do, um, mm -hmm. and just think about that. But I was, I was really, it was interesting how much the conference energy was there, um, you know, to connect to, or to retreat from. Totally. That was one of the biggest things I was surprised about that they were able to recreate in the online conference. And I guess that's the hardest thing to attempt to convey now after the fact that somehow they pulled that off and recreating it, however that happens. Uh, what about you, Kelly? What did you see any lectures? Or were you I, you were working? I was I mean, similar to Austin, yeah, where yeah. it's it's a working weekend. That said, and then I had the time zone factors. So for instance, I didn't get to catch Austin or Lisa live just because it was three in the morning here and and I love you guys, but I needed my sleep with working. Right. So I'm very excited to hear theirs. I did catch um part of Demetra's talk on the Friday about I think advanced 
tripless advanced dignity to do with the triplicities and the terms. I always mm-hmm. like hearing Demetra, but I was able to catch um, on Sunday night. I was, I think I was quite stimulated by that point. And I was able to catch part of Kate's lecture live, which I was really happy to. I caught the second part and that made me even more curious to hear the first part. So I, I really only saw Demetra and Kate live and I've got a long list of, uh, like they heard so many good things about so many talks. The one piece of feedback I kept yeah. seeing over and over again on social media was across the board, whether they were new speakers to Norwalk or veteran speakers, everybody seemed to just deliver over and above. And that makes me, re- it actually made me so excited that even though I do have access for two weeks, I decided to spend the extra $100 and buy the recordings um, just so that I have a little bit more time to get through. Cause I'd, I'd really, there's so many wonderful speakers and there was such a good mix in the speaker lineup this year between so many more fresh speakers, new speakers coming in, people we haven't seen on the right. Astro speaker circuit, um, Bear River, um, Diana Rose Harper, just to name a couple, but I know there were a lot more as well. I don't know if you guys can remember. I know we did a, a good shout out to all the, um, speakers last month, um, but everybody's just got amazing feedback. Yeah, uh, it was really good. And one, uh, that's what's important about Norwalk is they always give new speakers, like oftentimes new speakers in the astrological community get their start at Norwalk. Um, I did. I started out volunteering in like the bookstore in 2005. And I think in 2006, I gave my first talk for Norwalk. Um, Austin was your first major conference talk at Norwalk. I believe it was, wasn't it, in terms of the astrological community? Yeah, yeah, I think I spoke at the uh, the esoteric book conference before Norwalk, but I think Norwalk was the first uh, astrology conference talk I gave. Yeah, and then Kelly, you of course had already given talks at major conferences in Australia for the Federation of Australian Astrologers. Uh, yeah, before. I had, and I think I applied under the new speaker program for UAC 2012. So my first big talk in the US, I'd spoken at the SOTA conference in like Toronto, Buffalo prior to 2012, but I actually spoke at the UAC 2012 in New Orleans as a new speaker. Um, that was where I first crossed paths with Laura and that's how that you and I were just figuring out that's how I got to Norwalk the year after. Right. You actually just shared like an old photo with me for, on Facebook today <laughs> from 2013 that is like this is us vintage. hanging out, talking and becoming friends at Norwalk 2013. And then we talked so much at this conference that we went home and like immediately recorded like three different podcasts in a row together, which yes. are some of the earliest, like the first 10 astrology podcast episodes. Yeah. Way back in 2013. So that was a Long while ago. ago. There's all those memories. Like that was just a Facebook. I was like, oh my God, Chris still has hair. And somebody <laughs> right. shared a photo of the two of you, I think, like almost from that same timeline recently. Yeah, that was a less good photo when I was like further into my sad return. And it was also <laughs> like at the end of a conference. So I'm not going to share that one. You're but not going to share also- that one. Okay. Well, I don't know. Do you totally have fine. it in Austin? I don't have the link. <laughs> I don't know. And I think um, that okay. photo that you just shared, Chris, I don't know if I should reveal this. I think it was about three in the morning. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. That and was. Like it was so very they, late on the last night, the classic late night foyer chat. Yeah. Cause I think we were the last two standing at that conference at like the very end of the final day. Yeah. So good times. Um, good so memories. Yeah. I mean, this is what happens at conferences, though, isn't it? You meet people, you connect, you form your little crews, and usually stay up late on the last night drinking. I mean, other people do it every night, but I can only do it on the last night. Um, Yeah. So we'll see what happens next year. Um, 
the the jury is still out on ESAR 2020. They did mm-hmm. earlier this month have a public panel where me they brought invited me and a few other speakers to like discuss what was going on publicly in front of an audience of like 100 ESAR members and there was a lot of different pros and cons being kicked around and they were talking about not being sure if even the state of Colorado will be allowing gatherings of that size by September. So a lot of stuff is still up in the air and they're saying that they will not make a final decision until June or July. So we'll see what happens with that in terms of whether there's going to be another big astrology conference later this year in September and of course we'll see what happens with Norwac next year in 2021 since it happens every year in May and whether that will be an in-person conference or whether that will be online again or some mixture of the two. Yeah, I'm I really would like ESA to make a decision, but I appreciate they've got a lot of negotiation to do behind the scenes. So we have to wait. I think they said they're not going to make anything firm until late July. Was that what came out of that discussion? Yeah, I mean, that's what they're saying. And there's going to be different points where they're the contract with the hotel, the money will probably increase and everything and get worse. But yeah, it's a big gamble just because they don't want to. If they cancel and they don't have a good reason for canceling the contract with the hotel, then ESAR just loses a ton of money and is in the hole and can't host future conferences. So that would set the community back a lot. So there's a lot of big considerations going on there, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'll, I'll put out more information or news as soon as that's available. Um, other than that, um, other things that have happened this month that we I wanted to reflect on. Um, did you read that like New York Times hit piece? That was the first episode on astrology. That was the first episode we did this month. I don't know if you happen to come across that. I saw the chatter about it, but I have to confess I did not have a lot of spare time to dive in. I feel like there's a lot of things I need to catch up on. So I, I don't have a lot to say there. I just heard about it and thought, oh God, beating yeah. up, getting beat up in it, the mainstream again- media again. <laughs> This again. Yeah. Did you see that New York Times piece, Austin? Yeah. I mean, I I looked at it and I was like, it's going to be another one of these. And I scanned it and it was, um, you know, it's um, let's um, let 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 us furiously attack the straw man version of astrology. Right. Um, You know, it's like, okay, you know, same shit, different day. It says, I think, more about what the New York Times editorial um, board would like to believe about astrology than it tells us anything actually about astrology and what it's good at and what it's not good at. Yeah. So the title was, Will Coronavirus Kill Astrology? The Pandemic Has Affected Us All, Has Affected All of Us Who Saw It Coming. And there's just this like hilarious, like over the top, um, they got they must have hired somebody. Oh, they're burning to like, it. I get they I'm printed like, out a chart. Yeah. yeah, they printed out a chart for those just listening to the audio version um from astro.com and they like set it on on fire. So um <laughs> yeah, I think that it was a really bad piece. We don't have to talk about it too much, um, because Lisa and I did a whole episode about it, and that was the first episode of May. I did want to mention it because one of the reflections that we had was, you know, um, Astrologers, often a lot of the discussion and so much of the discussion in modern astrology, especially over the past 20 to 30 years, has been coming from the psychological astrology cloud crowd of not wanting of do no harm and like not wanting to do harm, especially by issuing what could be perceived as like negative predictions about the future or either about an individual's life or about mundane astrology. 
And obviously, this year we've seen the flip side of that, which is that if you see difficult stuff coming up, but you end up painting an overly rosy picture, then you're going to get flack for that as well. And that, that is the other side of the coin. So, one of the things that um, Lisa and I talked about and that I was reflecting on in that episode was certainly I remember we had some discussions about when we were putting together our forecast for the year of 2020 back in November when you guys flew out to Denver and we were talking about like how to approach it and um, how we wanted to present everything and what we wanted to say, as well as the transits as well, and, and just dealing with the fact that it obviously was a very heavy year. There were a lot of difficult transits, and it was also like a very momentous year because there were some major outer planet cycles that were taking place, like the Saturn-Pluto conjunction or the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction that only occur every 20 to 40 years. So um, one of the discussions that I remember having was about language and framing and like what what like phrases we were going to use and i remember at least in that episode saying a little bit that i didn't necessarily want to end up with like another um phrase like meat grinder or something like that or at least i wanted to be more deliberate about whatever we ended up choosing to be the main phrase and i think the way that i accidentally framed that made it come off to some people as if i had somehow censored you guys or censored austin and I just wanted to clarify, or at least ask, if you felt that that was the case, if you felt like I was censoring you or anything like that, because I don't think that was the context, but I think I may have accidentally given that impression. Um, well, so you know, censorship is something that you need a powerful institution to inflict on an individual. Um, and though I am a guest on your podcast, I wouldn't uh, characterize the power dynamic as quite <laughs> as quite like that. You know, um, I, as I think any uh, longtime listener will pick up on, or even short time listener, um, we have very different senses of what is appropriate and useful, right? <clears throat> and uh, as any, again, as any medium to long term listener um, knows, I. Um, often give myself the liberty of saying things that you would not. Um, and so if you are running a censorious regime, it's not been very effective. Um, but, you know, in, you know, joking aside, um, we sat down the night before and I don't remember everything that was said, but I remember where, at least where I was coming from, which is this is such a shit show. Um, I don't even know how to have fun with it. You know, part of why yeah, the year the um, year ahead, the the astrology yeah. for the year ahead. Yeah. Part of the reason why, you know, the meat grinder worked, and that wasn't all of last year. That was like a window of rough configurations. One of the reasons why yeah, I thought that was fun and appropriate is because there was a lot of good to offset the brutal last year. Whereas one of our one of our biggest problems with 2020 is that there's very little good. Uh, to offset the difficult, you know, and that's represented uh, technically by the 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 benefics being um, uh, uh, afflicted um, and in rough places almost the entire year, right? And so, you know, it was sort of like, oh, I don't know if it's appropriate to have fun with this, or I don't know, you know, right. we were basically like, to, how do we break too this? Jokey. As politely, or how should we say, as diplomatically? 
but honestly as possible, because this is a bunch of bad news. And you remember, you know, we were doing this in the last days of Jupiter in Sagittarius, um, even though there'd been a lot of difficulties in 2019, um, there were a lot of things that were going well. Um, right. and yeah. so, you know, people weren't ready for just like a complete hammer blow. Um, I, you know, in retrospect, like looking back at what I wrote and what I said on the astrology podcast and in my, uh, half year ahead with, uh, Gordon White on Rune Soup, I don't feel, uh, I don't, I don't feel like I, like we sugarcoated anything. Um, I did, we didn't necessarily right. twist the knife, right. Which maybe, I don't yeah. know would be appropriate. I don't think so. Uh, it's bad enough that we have to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't need well, to like I just feel it's, it can sometimes get like almost distasteful if an astrologer yeah, absolutely. goes like too far, too too far is like over the top in terms of the doom and gloom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so one positive thing um about the terrible uh skies and earths of 2020 is that I think this has uh, this has semi permanently shifted the framework, almost like a weird astrology Overton uh, frame or Overton window for what is appropriate and useful to talk about, um, and that right. more people are now interested in like, well, is there something really rough coming up? Because it would actually be much more helpful to have an idea of when things will be difficult um, rather than you know, rather than sort of, you know, sugarcoating things. Um, you know, you, it was interesting, Chris, uh, the way you framed it as uh, do no harm, right? Setting a falsely positive expectation um, can be a form of harm, right? So, for example, mm -hmm. if I know that there are, um, uh, there are like caltrops, right, which are little spiky things on the ground, if I know that the ground is covered with spikes 100 feet ahead, and I just reassure someone and tell them that they're great um, and that they can do anything. And then they get a big metal spike through the foot. Um, you know, I did harm by, 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 uh, should we say it's a sin of omission, right? To not mention the potential, the, the likely difficulty of the road just up ahead. And this is something that I think, you know, at a meta level, we're discussing, you know, year ahead themes and people who are writing astrology columns and things like that. But there's also a level of this that goes on even in client consults is striking that sweet spot between informing in a way that is grounded and realistic. And as you say, Austin, sort of accurately describes the layer of the land ahead without being overly Pollyanna about it and without being overly doom and gloom about it. It's, it's, and that's, that's really where the skill is. And I think that's something that every time we sit down to do a show or you sit, it, every one of us sits down with a client consult, it's trying to really hit that sweet spot. Sometimes astrologers get it really, you know, you're on it and it's great. Other times you might go a little bit too, maybe I was a bit too harsh or maybe I didn't describe the challenges enough and constantly just having to check back in and reflect and, and aim to be more accurate going forward. Yeah, yeah it's, definitely. Um, and and then there's a it's not separate easy. issue about what your client or what your audience hears and like how they perceive what you're seeing that's sort of out of your hands. But certainly that balance is something that every astrologer thinks about and tries to get right to to the best that they can. Yeah. Okay. Are you gonna say something, um, Austin? 
yeah, what was, what were you, you going to say? I don't think so. I mean, I think I said my things. Okay. All but right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, just to, yeah, go ahead. I don't need to continue. Um, I was basically just going to move on unless we have anything else to say about that topic. It, it has certainly been eye-opening for me seeing this other side of it since I had been more I'd been concerned about not going too far in a negative direction and certainly we do see the the opposite side of that so I think it's just been eye-opening for a lot of astrologers. Totally. Um, all right. So, other stuff that happened this month. The only other thing in terms of the podcast was the exaltations discovery. There's a little minor episode where we may have, you know, discovered the origins of the exaltations after 2000 years, which is pretty nice. I don't know if you guys got a chance to see that one yet. Kelly, you said you saw part of it. I, no, I just saw that it flashed up. I think you guys dropped it like the week before Norwak, so I just right, yeah. haven't had a chance. Yeah, you were like writing a keynote to present in front of 600 people. Probably on 375 of my speech. So I'm, I'm yeah. really excited. I've got it flagged to watch. Um, I'm guessing you're in a similar boat, Austin. Yep. Yeah. I was busy. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was busy spending time with an unfinished PowerPoint. Yes. Okay. We will we will check in on that again uh, next month, but definitely want to draw your attention to it just because that was a big big one. Um, all right. I think that's it in terms of like general topics. Uh, I did want to do a little bit of a review in terms of the past month or anything you guys noticed about the astrology of the past month. We have mentioned the Saturn and Aquarius and some of the Saturn and Aquarius themes. Um, I mean, is this, I guess if we start talking about the astrology of last month, we're basically transitioning into the forecast at this point, right? Does this count? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. So official timestamp here. Uh, whatever we're in 30 minutes into this episode, we're going to start talking about the forecast for June, starting with a little bit of a review for May, partially because some of those transits that started in May are still carrying through at this point in June. Um, but Let's see where do we where do we start with that the Saturn retrograde or the Saturn station in Aquarius that was it it's the Mars Saturn co-presence mm. so this is something um, I think first that we addressed on the forecast the 2020 year ahead forecast episode we really identified that extended co-presence of Mars and Saturn together and had a lot of really interesting language for it. One of the ones that people keep quoting back to me in the YouTube comments the most was the statement about. Like no, there will be no hugging. Uh, that we said somewhat jokingly, but but like a, an actual metaphor for the astrology in the like third week of March, and that ended up working out pretty well in terms of the lockdown fully going into effect and everybody being under quarantine by that point um, by late March and early April. Um, but a lot of that was just us talking about the symbolism of the Mars Saturn conjunction that was piling up with all of those other planets in Capricorn at the time. And Kelly, I know you got an article out pretty early in the lockdown where you were speculating that this will probably, um, you know, be in full effect for the duration of the Mars Saturn co-presence, and then we'll start to lighten up by the time Mars leaves Aquarius mm -hmm. and departs from that sign-based conjunction with Saturn by mid-May. And I know that we talked about that basically in the last two forecast episodes. I think that ended up working out almost surprisingly well now that we're here at the end of May and. Uh, for various reasons, large parts of the lockdown have started to ease, not just in the U.S., but also in, in some other parts of the world as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's tricky. I want to be cognizant of the fact that 
every country has loosened in different ways. And there are certain things that some countries are saying, okay, that other countries are like, that's still not okay. Um, But I guess the point we were trying to kind of indicate was Mars was in this extended Saturn co-presence, which symbolically in all the keywords would talk about restriction or limitation or restraint. And Mm. then mid-month May, Mars moves into a Jupiter-ruled sign. And it just, it, it almost seemed like a really classic shift of now there's movement and there's possibility where before there wasn't. And I mean, we haven't had a huge amount, I mean, and it depends on your circumstances, we're in Belgium where a number of restrictions had lifted, but because we're here connected to military organizations, they've kept restrictions quite strong. So it mm. does, you know, but I think the general tone is there's just generally maybe a lifting of some of that intense fear that was so strong um, while the Mars Saturn co-presence was going on. It's not gone completely and and everyone's got different levels there, but it does feel a little bit more like we can think a little bit about the future now where before it was almost like day-to-day survival. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a significant trend towards loosening since the Mars Saturn, um, uh, since the Mars Saturn uh, got out of that co-presence. How did you feel about that? It's not that still. Sorry, we're having internet connection issues. If ever it seems like I'm talking over you, but, um, how did you feel like because I still have this experience and I don't know if it's just me, but like sometimes when astrology works and like you see the symbolism and you see it coming up ahead of time, you know what that means in general, but then seeing how well it sometimes plays out and fits the symbolism to a T when you actually then two months later experience the actual event, I still always really get a kick out of and am somewhat almost surprised at if surprise is the correct term. Did you have that experience this month, Austin? Or how would you describe um, it? Maybe surprise is I would the right say, word. Pleasantly. I would say it's uh, it's always a delight when it works out perfectly. Um, I'm less sure. surprised every year, but I'm uh, but my delight uh, is no less. Uh, and okay. You know, often it can be a case of uh, astrologer good, even when it's a it's a bad thing. But it was exactly what the astrology predicted. So there's at least a, a weird satisfaction, uh, even if it's an unpleasant event. I feel like there's probably some word for that in like another language, like German or something, where you can string together like three different words to form like a long compound word. If anybody can come up with a good one for that at some point. Um, the satisfaction that one gets from seeing a prediction come relatively true, true relatively well. I think if we could come up with a term with, for that would be nice. But so we, we've seen a loosening of some of the restrictions in May. Um, one of the things I thought was actually really interesting about that is that that didn't necessarily mean some of the restrictions were loosened, at least in the US, partially due to like political debates and things like that. And it's not necessarily the case that restrictions, I mean, we don't know yet. This is what we're going to find out basically over the course of the next month or two. It's not necessarily, the astrology wasn't saying necessarily whether restrictions should be loosened, but it seemed to be saying that the restrictions would be loosened around May. And I think that's kind of an interesting and important distinction that I was kind of ruminating on a lot this month as I saw some of the debates that were happening in the news and the things like that. Yeah, astrology is much better at saying what will happen 
what like what a what a person or a collective will encounter then what would be the best possible choice mm. you know in order to get the best possible choice um you need to look at the landscape that the astro in the dynamics that the astrology uh describes and plot a course through that uh very rarely does the astrology give you the right answer it gives you the map right a map is different yeah. than the one carefully threaded path through it right that's a beautiful distinction yeah um so we had the loosening with the mars saturn co-presence um clearing up we also had the venus retrograde station start um we had saturn of course station retrograde and we also had jupiter station retrograde and we are now about to be once we open up june about halfway through the venus retrograde period did you guys see any notable venus retrograde um instances in the news or did you see any notable like client examples of a eight-year repetition like for me the exaltation thing ended up being an eight-year repetition because it was eight years ago that ben dykes and i got together around this time of the year and we um made the discovery about the planetary joys scheme which showed how the four classical elements of earth air fire and water came to be assigned to the signs of the zodiac as well as a bunch of different concepts that were like built into the foundations of Western astrology. And that was a really big discovery at the time, which I published a, a paper on um, titled The Planetary Joys and the Origins of the Significations of the Houses and Triplicities, which you can Google and find on, online. Um, but then this Venus retrograde in Gemini, eight years later, this repetition in the same spot of the zodiac turned out to be us getting back together and finding this other piece of the system kind of embedded in things and realizing that the exaltation scheme is almost like a separate thema mundi or a separate planetary joy scheme that has certain things embedded in it in this very weird and interesting way. So that was my, so far at least, only halfway into it is part of my Venus retrograde story. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's your, it's in your fifth house, which is um, a volitional house. It's a creative house, right? You're creating, you know, you're finding, you're creating work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and to that point, 12 years ago is also when I created the astrology podcast during that, the same Venus retrograde phase. So we're not through it. And I'm not sure then what that means for whatever the next stage of the astrology podcast is right now. Um, but I'm sure something will be happening. I mean, just today we did have to finally buy expanded space for many more live people to be able to attend this live stream because so many signed up that um, people were going to be turned away. So I finally expanded it from like 100 attendees to up to 500. So that is going to push me to do more live streaming to make the extra expense worth it. So perhaps that's a change that will end up looking more notable in the future and long run in retrospect than it does now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It could well be, well, yeah, that progress. Yeah. So, um, did you guys notice any other interesting Venus retrograde stories so far, or, or things like that? I think Norwak was probably the biggest one. You know, um, a, an astrology conference that has occurred thirty-five times um, in a building, occurring for the first time um, in an online space, right? And all of the relational. Advantages, disadvantages, and necessary adaptations that were necessary, 
with that. Like that, that, that seemed overwhelmingly uh, Venus retrograde in a Mercury ruled sign while Mercury was there. Mm. Yeah, right. that juxtaposition of like Venus being retrograde in Gemini while Mercury was retrograde, or sorry, was in Gemini, not retrograde, but Mercury was there as well. Really interesting play between like the success of the technology of Norwak being online, for instance, versus the change in the dynamics of interaction with Venus being retrograde. Yeah. It's very thought provoking, sure. the nuances. But in terms of like major things, I, I didn't, I don't recall anything else. Um, okay. Yeah. On, on yeah. a, on a personal level, um, it feels like most Venus retrogrades, um, it's less fun than normal. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, certain, uh, go-to pleasures that you might have often become less appealing. Um, you know, if, if Venus provides the, the sweetness, um, things are, there's a certain lack of, um, you know, of sugary delight, uh, just available ambiently, you know, this time I decided that I would very formally, uh, adapt to that. And as I was saying to my patrons a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, Venus, when, when retrograde Venus doesn't offer, um, consi- uh, doesn't offer the same sort of consistent pleasures that are possible during the, you know, either of the direct or either the morning or evening rising. Um, Venus is in the middle of uh, an often complicated reconfiguration and isn't isn't uh, simple and accessible as a like as a source of harmony or joy. And so, you know, this time I I sort of uh, as sort of with my momentum off of the Mars Saturn uh, uh, co-presence. I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to try to have a great Venusian time. And so like I've just I've had no sugar and no carbs um for over a month and that's just what I'm I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the dietary version of this cuz I'm in a 6th house year and this my moon is in Gemini so this goes right over it. I was like, I'm going to do without the sugary delight, right? There are, there are other pleasures to be found. Um and you know, the Venus store is stocked with some weird stuff. Um, when I was talking with my patrons a couple of weeks ago, there was one really, I was talking about these ideas and just sort of this approach. And so, and I was talking about how sometimes, you know, when you go to Venus, you go to do something that is harmonizing or sweet or nice. Um, sometimes you get an unexpected, unexpectedly complicated result. And then one of the, my patrons shared a, I can't remember who, I apologize, uh, shared a story about, um, staying with some friends and how there was a kind of a relationship kerfuffle that was um, uh, that, that was catalyzed by one of the people baking a nice food for everybody. And usually baking a nice food is a is a socially harmonizing thing. Hey, everybody, I made us a pie. I made us muffins. I made us a cupcake. Um, but instead, this ended up being ended up catalyzing uh, a conflict or a relational shift in process. Um, and I was like, "That's it's such a good example, right?" And it's not that it may be that that relational shift had uh, needed to be addressed um, during this time period and will be ultimately for the good. But in terms of you know the the that day's experience, you know, oh, I made everybody a cupcake. I made everybody cupcakes, and it made things worse, right? Mm. Sure. Yeah, and um, we're like I said, we're only not even halfway through. We're about to be halfway through it. So some of the Venus retrograde themes still, I'm sure, will 
become or continue to become apparent as the month moves forward and as we get towards the end of June, where Venus will eventually station direct. Okay. Yeah. I, I think one of the go ahead. I was I just gonna one of the things going forward. Us. Okay. Okay, do you want to talk about the Venus retrograde in June in in another section? Um, no, I mean that's the very first thing. So let's just open it up. I was just gonna throw the calendar for um June up on the screen for those watching the video version. So this is the outlook from our year ahead calendar of just the major astrological alignments in June. And on June 3rd, we actually open up with the Sun-Venus conjunction with Venus retrograde, literally halfway, exactly halfway through its retrograde cycle. So that's really the first combination that we have to talk about this month is that we hit the halfway point right at the at the top of June. So um, this is actually a great time to check in about the the Venus retrograde. So what were you what were you saying, Austin? Oh, I was just going to say one of the things that I expect in June is for the Venus retrograde to correlate with um, the and in, in which is already beginning um, the an uh, an initial and unsustainable um, um, uh, sort of um, wash of spending. That will make the uh, various economies look stronger, and as if they will recover more quickly than they actually will. Uh, there are a number right. of uh, financial that's already happening. Like the, stock, the stock market's just like behaving bizarrely with rising and rising and rising in the U.S., even though the economy recently like grounded to a halt, and there's obviously like major cracks all over all over the place. Yeah, and there were there were there were cracks before this year began. You know, this isn't uh, this isn't striking a stone with a hammer. This is striking a rotten fruit with a hammer. Um, but yeah, a number of financial analysts um, have predicted a dead cat bounce in June, which is when the the market, the actual economy, doesn't have any strength in it. But uh, the that and that even though that term is delightfully ghoulish, I didn't come up with that. Um, no, that's that, a stock that's market a standard industry term. standard. It's <laughs> that's not an Austin yeah, it's that, like even even some yeah even something that is totally lifeless will bounce if it hits the ground hard, um, and it, it it it's basically you know an indicator of false health or false vitality, and that tie when I when I heard some analysts describing this, I was like that's that fits the time frame for June perfectly. Because we have uh, we have the Venus retrograde, which is going to you know the Venus retrograde when it does give sugar, right? When it does give some some sweet returns or what seem like profits when there's spending, um, you know it, it's often not it, it is not an indicator of a stable pattern to come. It tends to be an aberration, um, and then the end of the month we get a lot of really challenging things, and we begin one of the uh, the three. The three negative tent poles, the the three the three shit shows um, that uh, twenty twenty has planned, and the second quarter um, numbers will come out everywhere economically, and those will probably be devastating. And so, you know, this Venus retrograde first couple of weeks of June correlating with that dead cat bounce um, makes a lot of sense. You know the. Uh, the financial and the astrological are seem to be saying very much the same thing there. Yeah, uh, how are you feeling about all this, Kelly? 
Yeah, look, I definitely agree. I think that we have not seen the worst economically yet, unfortunately. And the first half of June, one thing I was really struck by when I sat with June, it's yes, we, I mean, Venus retro for basically the whole month, Venus doesn't go direct till the 25th. So there's a sense of just being suspect. There are some things that aren't ready or aren't as stable as they might initially appear. And I think feeding into that, especially in the first few weeks of June, is that we've got these, um, you know, Venus and the Sun are kind of running together in mid-Gemini and Mars is getting closer and closer to Neptune in Pisces. And there's sort of this undertone of Neptune in the first couple of weeks of June where given that Venus is invisible so close to the sun and planets are dealing with Neptune, I just wouldn't trust the way things seem to be that it's it may seem great, as you're saying, Austin, like everything looks rosy, but it doesn't make sense that it's still this shiny and bright given everything that's gone on. And as the fog clears and the Venus retrograde unravels, we're going to see some truths that will indicate this almost um, idyllic wishfulness is absolutely unsubstantiated. Yeah. I mean, and, and just to give the overview, because I liked that we started doing that and then you started doing that, Austin, it seemed like the overarching themes for this month are that we have the second half of the Venus retrograde in Gemini first and foremost, but then also eclipse season begins this month. And we also start to see the effect of the recent nodal shift, which starts to be felt, um, which is going to start shifting us towards eclipses um, in the Sagittarius-Gemini axis. And then finally, by the end of the month, we see the return of some of the tensions in cardinal signs, uh, especially in late June and early July when we have Mars moving into Aries, and then in, in early July, Saturn retrograding back into Capricorn. So we have a return to some of those like cardinal tensions that we were feeling between especially March and April and early May, um, which may be a sort of prelude to September and some of the culminations around September around the time of Mars stationing retrograde uh, in Aries, square Saturn, Pluto, and Jupiter. Yeah. Would you guys yeah. say that's an accurate accurate thumbnail overview of, of June? Yeah, absolutely. Um, by the time, you know, yes, I would say that that is accurate and we'll deal with the individual factors As we get <laughs> individually. There. I mean, the other thing when you were talking before, Austin, too, um, and to, to your point further as well, Chris, the first eclipse is June 5th, just a couple of days after the Sun-Venus conjunction. And it's in Sagittarius. And um, this is kind of the first substantial thing. It's, I mean, it's a lunation, but it's just a bit of Sag activation, which I think kind of feeds into that optimistic maybe without reason to be, but the idea of trying to see, definitely wanting to look forward. And I can understand that. I mean, I'm definitely like, when can we start thinking about the future again? But it is, it's, you know, it's a South Node eclipse. So it's, it may not have the solidness underneath it that we would like it to have. Yeah. And this is, well, that's a good so one. So it's, interesting. A, it's a full moon. Um, so we've got a full moon in Sagittarius, which has that vibe and that energy in and of itself. But this is also another one of those ones where we always debate when it's like just on the outside of being in an eclipse. I mean, I usually tend to be more liberal in t saying that that's probably close enough to be an eclipse, especially since the nodes change signs. Um, are you guys at all, do you fall on one side or the other on that? 
Well, it's so it's an eclipse. It's a very weak eclipse. Um, but I think that that actually is the perfect descriptor because as, um, as Kelly just said, you know, it's a full moon in Sag, right? And the light, it's not that the moon is going to go blood red anywhere, but there's going to be a stain on that optimism, right? There'll be a little creeping doubt or shadow, which is that's like that, that literal, um, quality of the eclipse is exactly, I think, what we're going to get. And we mm. don't see the, you know, we don't see the, the, you know, the, the lights are not swallowed by shadow until we get to the solar eclipse two weeks later, which right. is annular, which is basically as strong as they get. That's when the, uh, you know, that's when the, <laughs> that's when Sauron's forces, um, you know, sally forth. Definitely for all of, analogies for all of the, uh, Lord of the Rings nerds in the, in the audience. Uh, the I, I love yeah. that. So that's a really good thing, though. So, so we have to combine then those two things, and I guess that's appropriate since the first one is a Sun Venus conjunction, and then the second one is a Sun Moon opposition. So we're seeing kind of the culmination then of some of the optimism in maybe the first and second week of June before things start to set in and get real again with um, the third week of June, Mercury stationing retrograde. The solar eclipse it's happening very different after that middle of the month. Like it's just very different, right? Like first half of the month versus mid second half of the month. Yeah. Okay, so well, we should talk about that that Mercury retrograde because uh, that's yes. one of one of our uh, very important pieces. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, do you, so that's really I mean after the eclipse in Sagittarius, that's really the next major thing that I have on the calendar. I mean, there's also um, the Mars-Neptune conjunction, which I think occurs around the same time or maybe a little bit before that. But what's going on with the Mercury retrograde or what's the what, why is that retrograde important aside from just being a, one of our three retrogrades this year? Right. So one, um, with Venus and Gemini, Mercury is the ruler of Venus. Mm. So we have for about 10 days after that, we have retrograde Venus ruled by retrograde Mercury, um, which gives us not a tremendous amount. Uh, uh, we, we can say that the lay of the land will not be clear for a lot of people at that point. There's a tremendous opportunity for confusion. Now, even though Mercury may be confused there, um, it is not, uh, it's not a it's not afflicted. There aren't malefics um, staring right at it. Um, however, when we get to the end of the month and the beginning of next month, um, we'll see Mars uh, move into Aries and then put itself into a harsh square with Mercury. Oh, yeah. So where Mercury is going is much uh, is much harsher than the point at which it turns around. So that Mercury retrograde will bring nasty things, but not at first. Yeah, it's like the beginning of the retrograde initiates a review process, and the end result of that review process is some some unpleasant um, endpoint. Yeah, and then Mercury and Mars will spend a lot of time in a square in July, an unusual amount of time. And so that, and, and we will have Saturn on the very first of July retrograding back into Capricorn, which puts Mercury in a sign based opposition with, uh, with Saturn while being in, um, a, a degree based 
square with Mars uh, in Aries. So both malefics very strong and this Mercury retrograde is going to, and this Mercury cycle is going to end up configured to both, which is very harsh, but we don't see that harshness until the very end of the month. But the, you know, we get, how should we say we board the train in the middle of the month. Yeah. Right on that Mercury station around the 17th and 18th of June, 17th, 18th and 19th. Um, so mm -hmm. of course, that's when Mercury actually stations. It looks like it stations at 14 degrees of Cancer, 1445 approximately. Um, and it's going to retrograde back to uh, what's the degree to five degrees Ooh, of very early yeah, cancer, which, which means it's going to enter its shadow at five degrees of cancer around June 1st. Wow. So we, we literally enter the shadow phase of Mercury, the degree that it's going to ret retrograde back to at the very beginning of June. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot, um, how should we say, um, uh, <laughs> there's a lot growing in the shadows during the first half of June. Maybe the the good version of that is nutritive fungi, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of fungi that is, that is not nutritive. Well, there's a lot of things that that fungi has to grow in to be, you know, what it is. But so it seems like though, if the shadow is already <laughs> starting starting at the beginning of June, then a lot of what's happening in that seemingly optimistic part of June in the first week with the Venus retrograde conjunction and the um. The eclipse, the lunar eclipse, then is what gets revisited because anytime you have Mercury passing over its shadow degree and then it eventually comes back to that, there's something that has to be revisited that that took place at that time. So everything that takes place in the first week or two of June perhaps could potentially um, come back to and need to be revisited at some point at a later date. Yeah, yeah. One it's, thing, it's and I don't want congested. this to be too long a tangent. But it's worth describing briefly. Um, these upcoming transits, this Mercury retrograde, as well as the nodal shift into Sagittarius and Gemini, and that getting activated, is um, uh, very tightly configured to the U.S. Sibley chart. Uh, the U.S. has its benefics, both Jupiter and Venus, in the first decan of Cancer, and its sun is right in the middle of Cancer. And so we have that Mercury retrograde station basically on the U.S.'s sun, and then the direct station is right on the benefics, and our big solar eclipse is in the first decan of Cancer as well. And, uh, and the activating Sag and Gemini, as the eclipses are, um, that's big stuff in the America in a, in the in the U.S. Sibley chart, which has a Sag rising and a Gemini seventh. And uh, thank you for the thank you for the graphic, Chris. Um, and we see we have Mars and Uranus in the seventh um, in the U.S. Sibley chart in Gemini. And so you know we're looking at uh, North Node eclipses on top of Mars Uranus in the in the US for a while and we're looking at south node dragon tail eclipses on the ascendant um for the US for a while and um you know this is not the uh, if we look at the nodal cycle which is a little around 19 years um and we uh, we don't get a particularly stirring and positive moments in United States history if we pop back by that number 19 years ago being 2001, right? Yeah. Sure. 
And there were other factors um, yeah. at that time. I'm not saying I'm not saying that that will occur, but it's not. It doesn't help. Uh, is my point. It, it stimulates difficult portions of the U.S. chart. Right. Um, yeah, I was looking at that Aquarius moon, and I was thinking about that recently with Saturn stationing in that sign this month in May, um, stationing in early the early part of that sign, um, but just. You know, and like the New York Times ran a front page headline the other day about how the US is reaching about 100,000 deaths from the COVID epidemic or pandemic. And thinking about just the enormity of, of that in the context of something like a national chart. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you think about the moon in the US chart, about the moon having to do with the people and being in an air sign and there being this. Breathing, you know, that you can sort of see some of the symbolisms about um, the health and the body and the types of issues, the mind as well. Um, it's a lot of layers to it. Sure. Yeah. I um, do worry with what you were just saying, Austin, about the Mercury um, squeeze really getting back into that Mars Saturn jam. The previous time that we had a little bit of Mercury in that. Um, besiegement or maltreatment was when there was a lot of headlines about the US Postal Service, for instance, um, really struggling and what should happen with it. So it'll be interesting to see whether um, whether it's that particular topic or whether there are other things along those lines to do with Mercury's topics and Mercury's themes coming under pressure when Mercury itself yeah. is dealing with I, Mars Saturn. I, I, I think one of the, the ones that we can say pretty easily will be besieged um is uh commerce mm, that's true you know, yeah I, fair point i, I don't yeah. i um you know it, I, I don't want to be doomy but um you know we haven't uh we have not um even remotely seen the consequences the economic consequences of our situation um so here is and i'm going to frame this as an um, unnecessarily negative Austin metaphor. This is the way my brain tells me things, right? Um, mm-hmm. and I was saying the other day to Kate, I was like, it's a little bit like like a nuke that went off 50 miles away. You can see the brilliant flash of light on the horizon, but the blast wave hasn't hit yet. And the yeah. blast wave is economic. And I think we have two two big waves, one of which is... Uh, end of end of June, first ten days of July, and then the other one is in September, and that we're going to need to we're going to need to get both of those impacts to see where we actually are. Yeah, yeah, and one of the ones I, I just released this month, I re-released an old <clears throat> episode that Nick Diggenbest and I had done on Venus retrogrades, which was like the main Venus retrograde episode that I, I've done on the podcast, and it was done pretty early in the history. One of the things that Nick talked about in that episode was things like um, sometimes during Venus retrogrades, like riots and racial tensions. And um, one of our listeners, um, Madupe, is asking, is pointing out in the chat that there's already recently just happening in the past few days protests in Minneapolis because of the. Murder, basically, um, of a guy named George Floyd by some police officers. Did you guys see that video? That I, I actually I think it just went out like I, yesterday. I just saw it this morning. Actually, it's yeah. um, it's horrific. Yeah, um, I, I watched it yesterday. It was like it, I, when I woke it, up yesterday, I saw it in my 
like Twitter feed or on Reddit or something, and it's just really shocking. I mean, they, it, he literally is like murdered on camera, and there's a group of people around that are like trying to stop it and like wanting to interfere and trying their best to, but they just weren't successful. And um, yeah, it was pretty tough to watch. I mean, well, and it's no way like, and it. behind that, how many like that's the one thoroughly documented version of that, right? How many times does that go undocumented? Right, the overwhelming majority. Sure. Yeah, so that's probably an important element of what's going on right now as well in terms of the Venus retrograde and can be tied in with that. And we'll probably see a continuation of some of that story continue to unfold and play out as as people demand justice for that. Um, and one of the keywords that Nick Diggenbest used for Venus retrograde was challenging consensus and what happens sometimes when like the consensus reality or whatever the consensus establishment reality is needs to be challenged in order to change or revise something, um, especially as a result of something like an injustice. So that can be one of the more positive manifestations of Venus retrograde, even though sometimes it it is the result of or there's a an event that causes it that's not necessarily positive, but is is negative or is a tragedy. Yeah. I think that um yeah, I would give um, Mars in Aries for six months. The um, I think that 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 planet will take up the duty of making mm. sure that every cauldron of rage boils over. Um, but and we'll get a an initial dose of that with Mercury retrogrades configuration to that Mars in July. But then we'll get a double triple dose uh, in September and October. Sure. Um, all right, so we didn't really go through this chronologically, but one of the things I did want to mention, or that we might want to focus on at this stage, which happens um, mid-month. Let me double check on that's true. Uh, mid-month, yeah, about mid-June, before we get to some of the other heavy stuff, or it almost in some ways kicks off some of the other heavy stuff. But we get the culmination of through the conjunction of Mars and Neptune. It looks like around June twelfth at twenty degrees of Pisces. Um, so that's something that's a transit that would have begun already and started to build up in the middle of May, uh, but then eventually we see the the sort of peak of it when we get the exact conjunction here, uh, right in the middle of the month. So Mars conjunct Neptune, you can see it there on the screen. So Kelly, how do you usually delineate? What's one of your like archetypal delineations for Mars conjunct Neptune? Um. I was just reflecting on what we we're just talking about um, with the Venus retro and the the yeah, so much there. Um, Mars Neptune. Oh, okay. Um, I often describe this. So often when I'm and working it, with clients, sorry. If, and if you if you had something to say, if you didn't want to move on, we could still I, linger on that. I think the only just- thing that I want to maybe just cl- clarify because I've been trying to think a lot about this, and you know, as a white person. It's so easy to say this is so shocking, but I think if you're a black person, particularly in America today, this is not something that's surprising and it's not something that's a once. I mean, what I was trying to remember was there was a a black policewoman who, I think she was a policewoman, she was shot and killed in her home. And I was trying to remember when that happened. I think that was actually very close to the start of Venus retrograde. She was at home, the police came to her house looking for somebody else and she, she was killed in the safety of her own home. So 
Um, to your point, Chris, when you're talking about Nick saying Nick's research on the Venus retro cycle, I wonder if it just brings it to a wider audience, but I, I know that there are parts of the population that are, this is their fear every day, um, an EMS worker. And so, yeah, I've, I've just been trying to respectfully respond and think about this, knowing that I'm a white person, but, and it seems shocking to me. But for someone who's not a white person, who's a black person or a person of color, unfortunately, this is more of their regular reality. Yeah. Um, um, and that was something that was actually I really appreciated about this Norwak and that several of the new speakers brought um, a voice to and brought more of the focus towards or discussions um, in, for example, like Bear River's talk or in um, Diana Rose Harper's talk about issues of like privilege and how astrologers discuss things that they take for granted when they have different backgrounds where they just don't have the same struggles as other people or where there's certain things that they take for granted that they assume everybody has access to the same things or has the same opportunities or what have you, and it creates a sort of blind spot. Um, but I really appreciated the way that they introduced that and brought some from the social sciences, sort of more of that discussion into the astrological community in a, a gentle but also very important way because um, it's something that probably has been missing and that was discussed, for example, after Sam's keynote, because Sam Reynolds, a friend who's been on the show for a few times, has tried mm. to play a really active role in trying to to, you know, bring in and create more of a diverse audience in the astrological community, or at least hold a place for that, because he always knew that it was there. It just wasn't being represented properly or as much as it could be. Yeah. And Sam's been really influential to activating that conversation, I think, which is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, Persistent yeah. even when it wasn't um, comfortable. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. But it's something obviously to be aware about when we're like discussing something like this in terms of the point that you were making Kelly in terms of when things become documented and become like a media sensation and hopefully like leads to is is the linchpin that leads to some change or some sort of development versus the reality of just um this being a constant you know in some communities that is just ever present and that you aren't just aware of occasionally when something comes up in the news I think that's that's the reality that sometimes someone like myself misses and and has to be more cognizant of and and then then there does come a point where you know all of our best wishes are just bullshit and that has to translate into some kind of action to try and change the situation in, even in small ways that just help to take steps in in a better direction um yeah it, it I just I think the situation most recently, I I'm actually gonna get really emotional, but I couldn't actually watch it because I've read about it and I, you know, I've posted a little bit about it, particularly on Instagram. It's just so sad that somebody in this day and age, like, I don't know, it, it's incredibly devastating. And then when I remember that woman, the EMS lady, and I wish um someone could maybe remind me of her name, but she was just in her home. That's anyway, so yeah. Sorry. Oh my God. It's obviously emotional. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, would, I would just. It's just very unfair. People. It's very unfair. 
I would encourage people to just watch the video and not read about it or anything else because it's one thing to read about it. And I'm sure there's be will be different spins or different attempts to defend different things. But like if you if you just watch the video, it's like a very emotional, moving thing that you learn from. And I think people should. Watch I wanted to say that understand. lady's name, Breonna Taylor. Thank you. Um, yeah. And so, Chris, you're saying really we all have to just watch that video because we can't turn a blind eye to it, basically. Well, yeah. And I mean, just a little, a quick note about, you know, yeah. where is that coming from? That's coming from the uh, rapid militarization of the police in the United States over the last couple decades and the prisons for profit industry. And so, you know, if you're going to vote for somebody, um, maybe vote for somebody who has prison reform and judicial reform um, and checks on police power as uh, one of their priorities. These are, you know, those are the those are the mechanisms. You know, awareness is good, but um, like that, those are the systems that create that on a, on a large scale. Right, or recognizes and has a part of, as part of their platform and discussion a deliberate attempt to discuss discuss things like racial injustice or, um, you know, the case, or police injustices or other things like that that are important social discussions that need to be happening in the country. Yeah, yeah, I, I would like to and see policy coupled yeah. with lip service. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, so. All right. So to take us sort of back to what we were talking about with the astrology and just trying to get back to um, June, since we're now in the middle of June, um, the Mars-Neptune conjunction, while hard to articulate, and as with most things with Neptune, hard to pin down and sort of grasp as a single specific thing, um, I think is important potentially to discuss just because it falls Right in the middle of the month, right around the point where we get that shift towards some of the more challenging configurations that we've been talking about in the second half of the month, and some of the exuberance or the optimism surrounding the eclipse in the first week in Sagittarius begins to subside, and there is a, a transition into um, something else. Uh, so, archetypally, how because we. In the 2020 forecast, the year at forecast, we ended up inadvertently doing a good job just by attempting to describe the archetypes and sometimes coming up with keywords for them. Like, what was the phrase? Like, I always keep forgetting it, but it was like, there will be no hugging in the third week of March, was going to be one of our, our iconic phrases for 2020. Um, if we were to come up with a phrase for that for Mars Neptune, what would it be? Oh, uh, I know Austin. Somebody sent you a meme recently that was something like that, with like a a man holding a a sword who seemed to be like standing in the ocean and like fighting against the waves or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, with Mars Neptune, you have two very different powers. You know, Mars is we can say Mars is uh, the fire of individual assertion. Right. Whereas Neptune is inherently massive in its scale, you know, its orbit encloses every other planet um, and is very collective and very watery. And so it tends to dissolve the individual concern into a vaster sea. 
um, which can disperse it to the point that it seems not to exist. Um, just on a transiting level, uh, Mars's conjunction with Neptune um, will often feel like Mars disappeared for a few days. Um, mm. You know, that fire is just totally put out. Sometimes you will see, just sticking with um, elemental metaphors, you know, you'll see some of that water boiled into steam. And if there are threats or attacks, they will be indirect um, or, you know, uh, of the nature of a, of a toxic cloud rather than a single spear point. Right. So that which um, comes from many directions and is enveloping in the way that it sort of attacks rather than something that is a single, specific, distinct, sort of like spear point that one can deflect against. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, though, Mars, Neptune, especially in Pisces, is just a less aggressive vibe for a while. When there, mm. you know, the, there's no time where nobody will attack anybody, you know, out of seven billion people, right? There will be some aggression. Generally, less aggressive as a as a baseline, and when when attacks do occur, they will tend to be more uh, more subtle, more uh, on an interpersonal level, passive aggressive, more indirect, um, more diffuse, and occasionally just nuts and delusional. It's very low energy and lethargic. I think the elemental associations you were referencing, Austin, around like the water fire kind of piece is very appropriate to get a handle on that. Yeah. And and also because Mars also can tend to be or is fundamentally in people's charts, especially like natal charts, can be about decisiveness and how a person takes decisive action. Whereas Neptune is creating a sense of uncertainty and not really knowing which way to go. And when you combine those two energies, it often gets delineated as something that's problematic because the decisive decisiveness of Mars um, suddenly is just all over the place and doesn't have clear direction. So that may be one of the, the issues and one of the clear themes around the middle of the month is just not a misapplication, but a, a, a lack of clear direction and a lack of knowing which way to go as you're sort of like wandering through the fog that creates, even though there's a necessity of create of taking action, um, the uncertainty at the time makes it difficult. Yeah, absolutely. What's like what do Very I Very confusing work really hard to do? What? Um <laughs> Why right, like again? Where, what, what direction yeah. do I boldly charge ahead in? Yeah. Right. I don't really so, feel like charging anyway, so <laughs> it's it's very congest. There's a lot of congestion and a lot of sleepiness, I guess. So yeah, I don't think it's going to be a productive few days because the moon is also there. So I was just trying to check the degrees. Um, yeah, the moon conjoins Mars and Neptune right at twenty, right around the same time as the conjunction, and of course, this is some of these themes are getting repeated or echoed or compounded by the Mercury retrograde, which is also. Slowing down and stations retrograde just a few days later um, by the June seventeenth, June eighteenth. So we get some similar themes of you know things like miscommunications or uncertainty or going back on one's word or having to retread um, steps that you've already taken previously that start coming in around the same time with the Mercury retrograde. Yeah, it's just very unclear, isn't it? Well, and it may be good to pause 
during this mid-June, because the second half of June has a bunch of stuff that if you kept your momentum from early June, you'd be heading in the wrong direction. And I do want to say something nice about the temporary excitement of uh, the first half of June. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we, we've made, um, we've perhaps belabored the point that, um, you know, a lot of the goods we see in early June uh, aren't going to last. That doesn't mean that they're not, it's not a good time to do things that are fun, but don't need to last. Right. The, you know, um, we still grow flowers, even though they wilt. Right. They're, mm. you know, it's okay. You know, it's okay to enjoy, even if it's like, uh, you know, everybody's not so stressed out for a week. That's still something valuable. You just don't want to draw conclusions about where things are going from that good week. But by all means, enjoy that good week or two. Yeah. That's something I was saying for my month ahead subscribers uh, for June is that you know, it's okay just to have more of a flexible or a fluid period of time. It may not stay that way and it's highly unlikely to, but it's okay to uh, take things down a notch or just to, you know, not have to be so clear or timely for a little while. Yeah. I'm thinking of, for me, over the past like week or two, it's been something as with the Mars-Saturn co-presence finally ending uh, it's just something as simple as like being able to get takeout again. Uh, takeout food has been relaxing, or like almost like a return to normalcy. Even if I know um, there's still other stuff going on, and even if we know that that things could still um, take a weird turn, or or very well may may take a weird turn very soon in the future. At the same time, some of what you were just saying, Austin, reminded me of uh, some of the pictures we've seen from. Some states where people are suddenly like flocking to pool parties and stuff again, and just like probably some of the, even though they're going out and enjoying things and trying to enjoy life again and and return back to normal, um, some of the potential drawbacks that there there might end up being for for stuff like that in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, that's one. That's one um, case. You know, it's sure. uh, I guess that's kind of doing yeah. the opposite of what you were trying to do, where you're trying to bring, ironically, uh, uh, some levity or not levity, but like some optimism to our, our picture this month. Um, well, not even up, just what what is the time good for, right? Some utility, right? It's okay to enjoy things just because the you know just because there are more uh, more difficulties waiting in this year doesn't mean that you should be focused on the worst parts of the year and just be miserable the whole time. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, you know, if you're uh, there, there are plenty of um, there are plenty of things that don't need to you know, you're not electing the, um, you know, the starting of a foundation that you hope is going to endure for 200 years. Yeah, maybe this isn't a good time to do that or starting a business that you hope to support you for 20. Right. But like, you know, throwing a thing, getting together or doing something, having a fun night doing, I don't know, by yourself, whatever it is. Um, like you can, you know, you can still make use of, uh, the flower, even though it will wilt. Mm. Sure. So, um, yeah. So bringing us back to mid month, why don't we move into our second lunation and move into those, those, that last week or, or two of, of the month where, um, things start getting more serious. 
So we have the sun move into Cancer as it does around this time of the year every year on the 20th, and we get the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere. And immediately after that, we get a solar eclipse in Cancer. And I believe this is the last solar eclipse in Cancer that we have for yeah. quite a while now, for years, because the nodes have moved out of Cancer and Capricorn. So now we're going to stop that. So this is the final one in this series that have been bouncing back and forth between Cancer and Capricorn for months now, with the last set taking place in uh, like December and January, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah, this will be the last Cancer Capricorn axis eclipse. So it's it's a very strong one. That eclipse cycle is definitely going um, going out with a bang, if you like. Um, yeah. So the we have the solstice on June twentieth, and then the eclipse. I think is the very next day, um, and that's that is going to be quite dramatic. I mean, for various reasons. One of the reasons I always look for is, you know, if we do have an eclipse very close to a solstice point, it just seems to trigger more drama and more uh, more dramatic events and outcomes. Sometimes we see it in the weather with nature events, but we also see it um, in our lives and collectively as well. Right. So here's the eclipse. I'm just showing it for those watching the video version. So it's right there at zero degrees of Cancer. So that really emphasizes and drives home your point that this is really right on the summer solstice or right on the solstice and therefore on a very pivotal and very powerful point in terms of. Um, astrology and just in terms of the world in general. And it's also just very close to the node, which the true node is still there at 29 degrees of Gemini. So that means this lunation is right there on the nodes. Yeah, which is why which is why it's an annular eclipse. That's right? what the makes closer it so to the intense. nodes, yeah. the more the more the more darkness and shadow you get. Right. So an annular is when you get the um the ring with the 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 ring of the sun with the with the uh, the shadow uh, darkening the center, but the little ring of fire on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, that's what this eclipse will be. And so, what's interesting is that whenever you have um, one eclipse that's super intense like that, it means the surrounding eclipse or eclipses will be super wimpy. Um, it's like there's only so much shadow to go around, and it could be either evenly distributed between the eclipses, or one could take the uh, the lion's share. Or the dragon's I share, I think, is would be more appropriate. I like that phrase, a, a wimpy, a wimpy eclipse. Yeah, I mean, it, it also, yeah, it has to do with the amount of shadow, but also, yeah, the proximity to the node. So the closer the lunation is to the nodal axis, the more powerful. But that's not as poetic as saying wimpy and dragon share. Yeah, yeah. Um, not that th this is a, you're applying that to other eclipses. So this is a this is a powerful. Oh, this is very powerful. Yeah, because it's right there. Okay. Um, right there, because um, the, the yeah, the sun's on the north node around June nineteen, which is basically the middle point of the eclipse season or the eclipse window of possibilities. So one of the reasons this is important, of course, is because the the year opened with eclipses, and that was one of the contributing factors that we discussed in the twenty twenty year ahead forecast. Um, it wasn't just the Saturn Pluto conjunction that happened in. Uh, January, which coincided with the the rise of the pandemic, but that set of eclipses that was happening in the Cancer and Capricorn axis was also a major contributing factor in December and January. 
Uh, right. Yes, indeed. So just to take a look, I'm going to animate and take the chart back to look at those. So we had a, this was the Cancer lunar eclipse, right? Which was about January 10th at 20 degrees of Cancer. And then yeah, right, um, right next to the exact Saturn-Pluto conjunction. Yeah, which is beautiful. And that in my presentation at Norwalk, I pulled up the New York Times, like ran an article that day on January 12th that was like mysterious flu-like illness reported by China or something like that, which is like beautifully lined up with the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, but also with that lunar eclipse. So we had that lunar eclipse in Cancer in January, and then of course back in December we had the solar eclipse around December 25th, 26th, which occurred in Capricorn. So this set of eclipses um, at the end of this month and in early July is going to bring to culmination and is going to be returned to or like a bookmark or a bookend in some of the story that started for some people back then around December and January, um, and a return to some of those themes. Uh, even earlier, um, this is um, we are approaching the last uh, eclipses on the Cancer Capricorn axis. Uh, after this, it's all Gemini Sag for a while. So this is actually you know bringing to an end a year and a half, um, year and a half two uh, year and a half two ish year arc of eclipses in Cancer and Capricorn. Right, which is and it's kind of poetic in terms of also. It happens shortly after this month, but it's tied in, but also having Saturn retrograde back into Capricorn right at the beginning of July for its final last pass through the tail end of and the last few degrees of that that sign. So all of this like a, intense um, energy in the Cancer Capricorn axis is just getting um, one last pass during this six month time frame from. June and July onwards, and then that takes us fully into the second half of the year, and is like a opening of a continuation of themes all the way to December. Yeah, you know, speaking of the poetry, um, one thing I was reflecting on as I was looking over this month in preparation for today um, is from a sort of a strictly omen reading perspective, like not bringing in any of the. The more sophisticated tools we use, um, the two solar eclipses, this one coming up and then the one um, that was in December, you know, for a lot of people that was a solar eclipse on Christmas, right? Which is a day where, you know, which is the day a couple days after the solstice uh, uh, in the Northern hemisphere, when the sun starts growing in light, where the day, day strikes back against night and begins growing. And here we have um, another sort of natural so point of solar celebration in the Nor northern hemisphere, the point of maximum day, um, you know, the, which is what the solstice is, which is darkened again. Um, mm -hmm. And from a strictly, again, just from a strictly observational um, perspective, that do, those don't seem like um, those don't seem like good omens for 2020. Yeah, that reminds me of the solar eclipse in December, and I was trying to put a slightly positive spin on it because it was with Jupiter. And I'm gonna go go ahead and see you called that one. Uh, yeah, what was one. your phrase, Austin, for that? 
Do we dare repeat it? No. I don't. I don't know I if you don't had a remember. phrase, but we we had a slight disagreement if, yeah. about whether like Jupiter being in such close proximity to the the solar eclipse of uh, the sun, the moon getting in the way of the sun and extinguishing its light, whether that put a slightly positive spin on that. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and give that one to Austin and say the answer was was no, not as much as one might hope. <laughs> well, thank you. That's very gracious. Yeah, people in the chat were saying that was the Antichrist. Yeah, I'm uh, like, I'm one, sure it was the Antichrist yeah. eclipse. That was well, that was the you know that was the Antichrist election that everybody missed. You know, okay, now we're gonna try to have a baby for that one, but just couldn't get our shit together because it was like right around Christmas. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, it was a solar eclipse on yeah on the birth of the Christ, right? So that seemed like a pretty natural you know dragon baby. There it is. Um, election. Yeah. There's the chart. So yeah, sun conjunct uh, the moon on December 26th. Actually, it was very late on the 25th, and then Jupiter was right there at five degrees of Capricorn. So it's one of, and this brings up another point, which is because there's some traditional astrologers that were trying to debate, like, well, could you have seen the pandemic just through traditional astrology? And one of the main things they pointed to was the eclipse. Which it's like, yeah, you the eclipses in December and January, yeah, you can see some of that, but I really did feel like this made a pretty good case for uh, the Saturn Pluto conjunction and Pluto not being um, a completely worthless piece of space junk, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> um, but instead yeah. having some some interpretive value in terms of especially mundane uh, astrology. Yeah, well, and that, that it does bring up really good questions, Chris, about mundane astrology. I think that one thing that's very doable with mundane astrology is to say, will this be a shit show, or will this be great, or will this be a mixed bag? Like you can judge um, quality of time relative to human expectations pretty easily, um, but the figuring out like if there's a bad, right? Is it is it a uh, hurricane bad? Is it plague bad? Is it, you know, what kind of bad? And I think that this is actually sort of, um, uh, this is the part of the frontier for what's gotten called the traditional revival, right? I feel like the traditional revival has, um, in many ways, what well, started with horror and then there was a wave of natal, um, and mm. we're just starting to uh, have people who have who have the how should we say the uh, the the experience points um, to start applying these uh, to the mundane, right? Um, and so I'm I'm actually oddly excited about the ability to make large scale predictions that happens when we integrate a lot of the mundane techniques which were collected so nicely by Ben Dykes in his Astrology of the World Volume 1 and 2 but when you combine that with some of the the um uh, Tarnas didn't invent it but he explicated it very well the like the bigger like Saturn Pluto cycles which mm -hmm. are not you know discussed by Abu Mushar um, but use a logic that's present um in you know the cycle logic that's present in that earlier strata um I think uh, I think we're going to have a better and better um mundane astrology you know perhaps a year too late um but sometimes you know sometimes it takes something terrible to get people to realize that hey maybe maybe it's worth forecasting a plague even if that sounded like um the the mere obsession of the endlessly negative you know a few years ago 
Yeah, totally. And Lisa and I talked about this a little bit on the the podcast at the beginning of this month about the media's coverage of and attempting to paint astrology in a negative light and say that they didn't predict um, the pandemic or didn't even say the broader point the article was trying to say is that astrologers were saying that 2020 was going to be a great year and there weren't going to be any problems. And that was just who said obviously. They quoted Susan Miller, didn't they? Yeah, they they've made the focal point of the piece Susan Miller and her whatever she got on some television show and tried to put a positive spin on stuff, but that's partially kind of her style is that she tries to put a positive spin on things. And that's like a deliberate thing on her part because she's primarily doing sun sign horoscopes for people, which are like individual readings for non-astrologers. But that's kind of like different than doing mundane astrology or doing an analysis of like long-term planetary cycles. And one of the ones we pointed out was um there were in that episode and we read the quote is that there's a famous French astrologer uh, Andre mm-hmm. Barbeau, who actually mm-hmm. did an article in 2011 that he published in 2011, he actually passed away late last year in October. He he was born in like the oh. 1930s, so he was very old. But the timing is just amazing. He, he published this article in 2011, and let me read you because um, Mark Cullen on Skyscript actually had an excerpt from this article, which was titled like a survey of pandemics with Barbeau's one of his conclusions of the article where he's looking at long-term outer planet cycles that coincided with pandemics in the past. And one of the things that he said um, in this French journal was, going back to the pandemics and going back to the past century, the four crises of 1918, 1954, 1968, and 1982 are obvious, the two considerable being the first, the famous Spanish flu, which is said to have claimed 25 million lives, and the last one in which is AIDS, which is even more devastating and continues to be deadly. Since then, there has also been a small influenza surge in 2009 against the last lowest critical index cycle 2010. And that's like his phrase for some of these planetary alignments is is cyclical index. Um, But he says, we may be well in, we may well be in serious danger of a new pandemic at the 2020 through 2021 mark, at the lowest peak of the cyclical index of the 21st century, with the quintet of outer planets gathered over 100 degrees, a conjunction Jupiter-Saturn-Pluto can be more specifically and even specifically lend itself to the quote-unquote tissue of this imbalance. Nevertheless, this configuration can also transfer its core of dissonances to the terrain of geophysical disasters without ultimately sparring the international affairs scene, nature and society being indiscriminately affected. So it's like he tries to like sort of put a positive spin in the end, but like he makes a pretty clear statement that based on the repetition of previous pandemics, which was the focus of the article, because that's the thing, is like most astrologers aren't specialists in like studying pandemics and haven't gone out of their way to study those different cycles. Um but one of the astrologers who did um, actually did point out this year as a potentially problematic one in that that context, and this prediction was made years ago, and then he died just as the prediction was about to start coming true. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great um, that's a great counterpoint, and also yeah, Barbeau called a lot of other amazing uh, big things in the world, like the the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which he also called like ten years ahead of time. Based on the the Saturn Neptune cycle in that case, 
Yeah, there was another famous prediction in the book, Mundane Astrology, with um, Nicholas Campion and two other co-writers. Let me look up the name where one of his co-writers in that book um, actually predicted the fall of the Soviet Union based on that conjunction of planets in Capricorn in mm. uh, the late 1980s. Uranus and Neptune and Saturn, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so it was Charles Harvey, Michael Bajant, and Nicholas Campion. And I forget if it was Harvey or Bajant that made the prediction, but Nick Campion always, as a historian, still like looks back and, and acknowledges that as actually a pretty impressive pred prediction at the time since that book was published in 1984. So those I think are. I also called it in 79 or 80. Um, okay. I'd have to double check, but I, if I remember correctly, Barbeau had a prediction that was published like five years before that, um, the same thing. Sure. But it just goes to the point of, of the challenge of mundane astrology and the astrologers that specialize in it, and also how one approaches it or what your context is for what you're, you're trying to predict or what cycles you've looked into in the past, and then what you're trying to project out into the future. And in some instances, for example, in our forecasts, we're just trying to look at the sort of archetypal meaning of the planets and um, talk about that in the broadest sense of what sort of things that would coincide with or what kind of energies would be in play during those times. And then the specifics of that works itself out in the future in, in more concrete ways. But the goal is always to attempt to articulate the archetype. Okay. Yes, that's always the goal. Is that your goal? Is that your goal, Kelly? Yeah, and I find when I'm um, when I'm working with students, you know, I think there's a tendency that we may have as astrologers to try and jump to defining very specifically exactly what a symbolic thing might look like, right? Because that's what everyone wants. That's what people. That's what people think they want. I think, and mm. when you can clearly and articulately describe the symbolism. To use the anti-cuddle reference that um, I think it might have been Austin anyway, it was in the Year Ahead podcast about late March, that was purely derived on the symbolism of Mars conjunct Saturn. We had, we, we, none, nobody said pandemic or this or that, we just spoke to the symbolism. And when you can mm -hmm. speak to the symbolism, um, to use Austin's metaphor from earlier today, you you read the lay of the land. You may not get the specific manifestation of the symbolism, but you capture the core of the experience of that time frame, and that's incredibly meaningful for people. I think. Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of again, like our no hugging in like the third week of March phrase, which was the like one of the phrases that we came up with, but. Um, ended up being arch archetypally correct in a funny and not so funny kind of way. Yeah, but and I guess that it's that piece of that, trying to stay with the archetype. I, I would like that to be a tagline for astrology as a whole. Um, correct in a funny and not so funny way. <laughs> right, that could be the it's new astrology. tagline for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So that's so, the eclipse. That was all on the eclipse discussion that, and that, that was all our second second eclipse of the month. Um let's get I have, into I have one more thing on the eclipse. Yeah. Okay. Um just in, in terms of what that one of the things that that will probably mean. Um so uh as I as I mentioned before, in the Sibley US chart, um we have both benefics in that first decan of cancer. Um 
and we'll wait till it pops up. Do, 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 oh, you want do, the Sibley chart? Okay, hold on a second. Yeah, if you could. Um, and so, and it's the eighth house, eighth whole sign house of the chart. And so, you know, what is the eighth house and what a, it's going into debt or borrowing a bunch of money. Um, I think that um, that massive, um, how should we say that like, that uh, it's almost like uh, an eclipse that intense will drop a bowling ball um, on in, onto the fabric of whatever part of the chart it hits, right? Like the Einsteinian bowling ball, which distorts the space around it. I think that that I think that knowing what we know now, that the you know massively uh, massively um, stimulating the debt portion of the chart will look like another massive bailout uh, in the United States, not on that day, right? Eclipses take a little while to unpack, but I think that that virtually guarantees that another multi-trillion dollar um you know whatever you want to call that heist slash slight relief for um normal americans um will almost certainly take place sure so that's taking place in the eighth house of the sibley chart for the us and then um also happening that week neptune stations retrograde on the 23rd so we get a little little intensification of some Neptune significations that are going on, which is kind of an intensification of some of what we were already talking about with the Mars Mars Neptune conjunction. So it's just a reiteration of that in some ways. Uh, so there's the animate chart for that Neptune stations there on the 23rd, 24th at 20 degrees of Pisces. Um, then a couple days later, on the 25th of the month, we get Venus stationing direct at five degrees of Gemini. So we start to finally get some forward movement again over the next few days with Venus coming out of that retrograde phase. And then Mars completes its co-presence with Neptune and moves into Aries, where this is a huge shift because this um, transit mm. of Mars through Aries is going to last for like the next six months or something crazy like that because Mars goes retrograde in September. So normally Mars will do what it just did, which is like make its way through a sign in like a month or a month and a half or something. But here it's going to slow down and it's going to stay in Aries and it's going to stay in that part, whatever part of your chart this is, where Aries coincides with some house or, or whatever houses in your chart for the next six months. So that's going to be a really extended transit um, for everybody, no matter how you look at it, whether it's from a mundane standpoint or whether it's from a natal standpoint. So yeah, it's a big one. Animate the, the chart. Yeah, the Mars in Aries. Um, Let's see when Mars actually finally departs. It looks it's like, like it's early January. January. Yeah, January 6th, January 7th. It and is so, more than six it, full months. Yeah. And, and then Austin, yeah, where does it go? <laughs> oh, it, it conjoins Uranus and squares Saturn. When it yeah. enters Taurus, the next next year is better than this year, but it has a rough start. It does have a bumpy beginning, that's for sure. <laughs> take <laughs> take off may uh, uh, may not uh, may not be the most comforting experience. So yeah, but the, I don't know. The, Go ahead, yeah. Kelly. I was going to say that. I mean, I was like, oh, we're getting so far ahead, but yeah, it's hard to avoid. When I looked at 2021, I was like, so when's Mars going to be in a fixed sign? How often is that going to happen? And, you know, it happens a few times. 
Um, but yeah, there's the Mars in Aries for six months. Um, yeah, chapter so, of our lives, basically. <laughs> so my my one one thing that I will say about this is okay, it's six months. Um, so uh, plan to start getting good at dealing with Mars and Aries um, on day one. Right. You've got a, you've got a little bit of time to figure out how to kind of work with and adapt to and protect yourself from, you know, from what it's like when it rains gasoline every couple of days. Right. Um, and so this is, you know, what Mars brings, Mars brings high volatility, um, to anything, to anything in general when it's in Aries, um, including people's, um, including people's moods and dispositions. Right. And so, you know, just think about like, okay, I'm going to have to store gasoline. Um, you know, I'm going to have to manage the gasoline all around me for six months. Right. And the, the answer to that is, you know, is not be terrified, but like, how do you, like, uh, how do you, oh, should we say, how do you store it carefully? And then also, if you have a, that's also a super abundance of fuel. And then what yeah. engines do I put this into? And we are careful when we work with gasoline, not be, you know, not because it is evil, but because it's highly combustible. Right. Yeah. And that's going to be like on a personal level. That's the, that's the, that's the challenge. Right. And maybe the gasoline's coming from your seventh, from your fourth, from your 10th, from your 12th, wherever it is, like it rains gasoline in that 12th pretty regularly for a long time. And so don't, don't curse the gas. Like, just think about what am I going to do with this? How do I contain it? How do I use it? Yeah, that was a great keyword. What you said, an overabundance of fuel or like an overabundance of gasoline, because with this transit, um, it's kind of a return to, since we have Mars going back into a cardinal sign. And so, and with, re with Saturn retrograding back into Capricorn, Saturn is overcoming through a superior sign base square Mars. So there's a return of some of those tensions that we were having between March through the first part of May about like wanting to move forward but being held back. And a lot of that manifested in a sort of collective feeling of constraint through like the lockdowns and stuff and the quarant the quarantines it's almost like we get a, a return of some of those feelings, but this time Mars is not in yeah. Capricorn where it's like more restrained and is almost behaving itself a little bit more, but instead Mars is in Aries where um, that sense of there being like a lot of fuel there uh, that's wanting to be burned is um, much more present and is a little bit harder to control than I feel like uh, when it was going through Capricorn. Yeah, harder definitely. to control. Yeah, and I also think too about the difference between Mars in Aries versus Mars in Aquarius, where Mars didn't have any um, major sign-based dignity, and mm. you know we're in you know certain parts of the world fair amounts of lockdown, and, and different countries have different cultures where they respond to lockdown restrictions in different ways. Right. There was but a story about like Japan is actually doing really well right now. Um, as a result of just uh, the culture being somewhat different surrounding the lockdown and everything else, and the deaths were surprisingly low. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm just, one thing I'm holding some curiosity and maybe a little bit of wariness around is that Mars, if you like being in a sign that he rules, he does have a lot of agency there to kind of push 
back maybe Mm -hmm. or to try and tango with Saturn in a way that he just wasn't able to, um, you know, there's a difference between being in the same sign, Mars and Saturn, where they're, they're, that's something, but being at odds with each other but physically distant apart is a different kind of thing. Right. And that, yeah, I'm just, that. There's, there's some, it's Mars and Saturn, but there's some really critical differences about the way they form up in the second half of the year. Yeah, and Mars yeah. being left to its own devices and having access to its own resources and um, fuel is like a, or gasoline is a really good um, imagery or you know Beautiful asset Austin. of Mars in in yeah. Aries, and Mars wanting to then sort of go out on its own and start fires during that time and being less amenable to the restrictions that Saturn represents. Indeed, or more angry Indeed. about them. and and that doesn't um, you know that be- that Mars and Aries begins at the end of June, and then we see it. Um, activated, especially by Mercury, the Mercury retrograde in July. And then things are, um, the planets and probably us will be in a slightly more, I don't know, harmonious relationship with it when the sun is in Leo and trining Mars before it's gone retrograde. But by the end of August and then September, it's Mars just about, it's stationing retrograde, square that Saturn and Pluto. And that's where we see the, you know, the large scale frictions that will be brewing for a long time, um, you know, uh, take place on the biggest stage. Um, Chris, what is the name for a planet that is on the inferior side of a square? Was it hurling rays back at it at the oppressor planet, the planet that's yeah, in the superior it's position? It's hurling rays, right? Especially once it gets within like a degree range of being able to closely aspect that planet, so to be hurling rays or to be striking with a ray, as if you're you're aiming with like a bow and arrow and you shoot an arrow backwards towards your target. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so that's 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 going to be September. We don't have that intensification until September, but um, you know, difficult moments are a lot easier if you watch them develop and know how to position yourself, right? It doesn't make them not happen. Um, but this one is worth watching develop um, on both a personal and a collective level. Um, we, right. you know, with that, that hurling of rays, I always think of, um, I always think of how, how, how much vitality and ferocity um, an animal has when it's cornered um, or, you know, mm-hmm. in, uh, I was actually, I was rereading, part of the art of war the other day. Um, and one of the pieces of advice. Uh, yeah. I love well, the just imagery of, Sunday reading. <laughs> that you're like, you're sitting in like the forest reading the art of war and like meditating <laughs> is like a per- perfect, like Austin, like imagery. It's well, very I was having my Mars consistent. return and par- one of my lectures was about superior or involved superior inferior squares. Um, and I wanted a quote from Sun Tzu about it's basically every uh, the army should prefer the high ground or prefer the high to the low. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but anyway, uh, in looking through the art of war, I uh, came across a quote that reminded me of of that hurling rays back at the planet that's in the superior side of the square. 
And mm-hmm. Sun Tzu advises that you know when you when you know that you can defeat the the opposing army, always leave a way out for them to run away because no army will fight as fiercely as when it is cornered and the back is to the wall, and you don't want to subject mm-hmm. um, your troops to the ferocity of uh, of so you know of an army that has its back to the wall. Right. Mm-hmm. You so you leave a way out so you don't have to face that pressure, and that that just reminded me so much of the the hurling of rays dynamic, right? Because Saturn may win, quote unquote, win, but take a huge amount of damage by putting uh, Mars's back to the wall there. Right. Well, that um, may bring us to one of the final other major alignments this month, which is the Jupiter Pluto conjunction, which is happening. Pretty much simultaneously at the same time. Um, so here's that. It's happening at 24 degrees of Capricorn. Both Jupiter and Pluto are retrograde. So this is the retrograde conjunction, and it's the second conjunction of Jupiter and Pluto, the second out of three. Um, so this is the sort of middle phase in their sort of dance between each other. Yes. Yes. So among other things, this is another factor I think that uh, attests strongly to um, big bailout energy. Mm. We saw the first um, of the large bailouts in um, early April. They were either just coming or being clarified depending on which country you're in, and that was the first Jupiter-Pluto conjunction. Yeah. So what if, uh, I want to ask a question. What have either of you gotten from this Jupiter Pluto on a personal level um in addition to like the big things that we've seen? Cuz I can I can think of a few things, but I'm curious about your experiences. I've got I mean I've definitely got one unless you want to go first, Kelly. No, you go. You go. I'm going to pull my thoughts together. So mine and I wanted to express this carefully and as careful as I could, but the big theme that I started realizing that I'd been overlooking, but it became really evident at the beginning of May, and I think was very much tied into the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction, was just issues of like truth and this deep um, desire mm-hmm. um, by large groups of people, by everybody, to get to the truth of like what is going on, and to try to undercover, uncover the true um, reality of that which is taking place. And one of the interesting manifestations of that towards the beginning of May, it was already happening in April, and we talked a bit about this, but there was like this huge spike at the beginning of May that I noticed on social media of the sharing of different videos that were supposed to be, um, you know, uncovering the truth about like the coronavirus or like what's truly going on and different like theories surrounding that, which I somewhat dismissively and I didn't mean to, to come off as dismissively as it as it came off, so I apologize for that. But I referred to it as "quote unquote" conspiracy theories. I think that's still like a reasonable um, term that could be used in a very broad sense to describe like a theory that involves a conspiracy, especially among groups of people or like government entities or what have you, in order to accomplish different ends. But for back, lack of a better term. Let's just say, for the sake of discussion, there were a lot of like conspiracy theory videos that were going around on social media in early May, like the pandemic video that got very big. And I think that is something that really gets to the root of what was going on with the Jupiter Pluto conjunction. And I had a lot of big sort of insights about that at the time. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that, um, that syncs beautifully with 
um, an article that uh, Patrick Watson put out before you know all this this circus started, um, where he was he just looked at the history of Jupiter Pluto conjunctions and found that microscopes and telescopes alike um, that allowed us to see things we'd never seen before uh, arrived in the human world during Jupiter Pluto conjunctions. Like, mm-hmm. which is the being able to look at things, either big things or small things, but being able to look further in search of truth, right? Mm-hmm. And our circumstances, for very different reasons, have absolutely kind of created the same need, right? And whether people do a good job of that or not, um, there's still that 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 is the root action and motive. Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's really good, Chris. I mean, yeah, there, well, there's the desire yeah. to use critical thinking sometimes to try to discover the truth about something or sometimes having the feeling of discovering a hidden truth which can be a, a very empowering feeling and that was actually initially what drew me to astrology was I actually got into astrology through broadly speaking what used to be a, a much less pejorative term but it seems like people often take it more pejoratively now than I realized of the world of conspiracy theories is how I got into astrology and I learned astrology partially in that context um, but it's like one of the things I, I, you know, there's some conspiracy theories I'm open to, and sometimes conspiracy theories turn out to be true. Um, but just because you believe in conspiracy theories doesn't mean that you believe that every conspiracy theory is true. And even somebody who believes in lots of conspiracy theories acknowledges that there's some that are not true, or even that sometimes conspiracy theories are put out by people who want to spread a certain narrative. So that conspiracy theories can sometimes be used as like an, another mechanism of control, even though they appear to be the opposite. And that's one of the things that I was having a deeper realization of during this transit that I thought was important. And I'm trying to put in the most delicate and like general way possible. But I think that's one of the themes of the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction that we'll continue to see a development and expansion of is um, different attempts to sort of manipulate and control narratives and to question truths. Because remember, this came up way back, I think it was when Jupiter was going through Scorpio and when Saturn was going through Scorpio and we were having these questions about um, truth and like justice coming out and truth being told by different people. Um, uh, Yeah, I think it was the Jupiter in in Scorpio and like the Me Too movement and sort of past Mm -hmm. discussions coming up about truth and justice for past instances of wrongdoing and people like speaking their truth. And so now with the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction, ideas of truth are also starting to come up. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Yeah, Jupiter's the big picture, what's really going on. And I believe that it was during Saturn and Scorpio and Jupiter in Gemini that we had um, the Snowden um, uh, uh, Mm. uh, stuff come out about the, the degree to which um, uh, America was surveilling its own people as well as other people. Yeah, and somebody mentioned. I actually looked this up because so many, like thirty people, wrote to me saying that the CIA created the term conspiracy theory. And I actually looked it up, and it turns out that the term conspiracy theory goes back to like the late 18th century or something like that. There's late late 19th century, so that wasn't necessarily true. And then it's ironic that a lot of people. Into conspiracy theories, think that that's true. There's a portion of that that's true in the way that it became um, something to deflect and to reject theories about that. But 
um, even that's worth looking into, to question truths and not take things for granted is maybe an interesting lesson about that, um, which could be taken in a number of ways. Uh, did you get anything out of the Jupiter-Pluto transit, or has it led to any new insights for you, Kelly? Um, not so much at a collective level beyond what you guys are already saying. Um, I have been thinking about how it's impacting my own chart, and the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction is very close to the ruler of the third house for me. Like it's like I have a planet at twenty-four Capricorn, and so this is right on it. And one of my siblings has been going through a very difficult time. Um, the timing line, the timeline of which began almost as soon as Jupiter entered Capricorn back in December. And that situation has sort of been playing out in a um, kind of almost classically Pluto way with that intensity and life getting consumed by just a couple of different things because, you know, there's a level of urgency. And so I've definitely seen it, you know, at that personal level as well. Um, in addition to what you're speaking to with, with the topics of, of truth and then the more collective, um, financial bailout pieces. Um, so there's been different levels, I guess, of reflecting on that one. Sure. And it, yeah. yeah. And I just I don't want know to if, clear. Yeah. I just yeah. want to clarify because I don't want it to be unclear, even though I'm trying to do this very delicately, but that I don't endorse, for example, the pandemic video or the views expressed in it. Um, so I don't want it to come off because I'm trying to treat it delicately for those that are into some of those things, but it's not meant to be an endorsement, but more reflecting on some of the themes that are coming up with those transits and some of the conclusions that I've been making from that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we can be we can be critical of, you know, um, the official story or the particular handling of a of an incident without necessarily agree. You know, um, believing that it was, you know, rep a reptilian plot or an intentional right. viral weapon. Right. You can be very critical and very suspicious of how this situation is abused, uh, is being abused, and will probably continue to be abused. Um, without necessarily agreeing with every, and it's impossible to agree with every, <laughs> uh, with every scenario. My friend um, and colleague right, and that Gordon was White just to interject, actually, and that was the reason why I wanted to say that because there almost seemed to be this reaction that if you criticize one conspiracy theory, that you're criticizing all conspiracy theories or somehow against any the idea in general, and that wasn't the case, but. More just the necessity of pointing out that sometimes even conspiracy theories themselves can be mechanisms of of manipulation or control or propaganda, and that was actually the deepest insight I had as I thought back to Pluto's discovery in 1930 and the way in which um, very quickly, like the Nazis were using things like propaganda mm -hmm. or using things like conspiracy theories surrounding the Jewish people being like the behind the scenes manipulators in controlling the financial systems or other things like that and other conspiracy theory documents like the protocols of the elders of Zion and, and just stuff like that in order to control and manipulate history in order to accumulate political power to themselves and that being something that coincided because you know the other outer planets is always so clear what their discovery coincided with and how that connected mm -hmm very closely with their fundamental astrological meaning like uranus and the american revolution or like neptune and the um advent and, and development of like 
like Alan White always says, like starting to print photos from the Civil War in newspapers and people thinking that they're looking at the real thing, but in fact, what they're looking at is ink blots on paper that's just recreating and giving you the false idea that you're looking at the real scene. Um, with Pluto this month, it felt like I got a deeper understanding of what was truly going on around the time of the discovery of that planet that was really relevant to its core significations and meanings um, that's evident in our time, even though it's it's subtle and sometimes hard to see. Yeah, I love that. When of course what Pluto, what happened at the time that Pluto um was discovered was inherently concealed right like the right. you know uh, man manipulated etc cetera, etc cetera. i was just going to say you know um my friend gordon white uh said one of my favorite things about speculating uh the the, the variety of angles of speculation about uh, the the coronavirus and all of the you know everything that's that's sort of stapled together in the 2020 timeline. He's like, and he basically said, he's like, you know, in 20 years, people will still be arguing over this. This is a little bit of a Kennedy assassination where there's like so much that's going on that's like intriguing and shady, but there's very likely not going to be the truth that's discovered. You know, like in 20 years, people will still be arguing about everything that happened in 2020. I thought that was, um, I thought very, that was pretty good. Very spot I mean, on. That's I true. I think that's probably true. And there's definitely truth to that. But at the same time, I think people should be careful not to be distracted from the shady stuff that's actually just really evident and right in front of us and yeah. is being documented um, every day in the news and be distracted by more complex, like elaborate. Um, conspiracy ideas that are going on when sometimes the most shady stuff is right in front of you, and sometimes those other things are just being used to distract from that. Yeah, and that's actually what Gordon was setting up. He was like, so this is that. He's like, but there's all this stuff right ahead of us, and trying to get to the bottom of this story is not what we need to be doing now. We need, like, there's a lot that needs to be done. A lot of people need to make big adaptations to be safe and hopefully prosper in a much more difficult era that we're entering. Right. He's like, sure. so that's, that's great. If that's your hobby, he's like, it's a hobby of mine. He's like, but it's a hobby. Like there are more pressing concerns though. Like we can just look at how the most recent, that re that first bailout was distributed. Right. And how much went to giant corporations, the tiny amount that went to individuals, and apparently the most Ill, uh, misallocated portion of those funds was to small businesses who are in tremendous danger. Right. Like that is that we can just get stats on and we can be concerned about things that are very real. To speak to your yeah. point, Chris. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, that kind of brings us to the very last thing, which weirdly happens simultaneously and may be tied in with this, as we've seen some other transits that are happening simultaneously seem to be connected, like the Sun-Venus conjunction at the beginning of the month that coincides with the full moon lunar eclipse. At the very end of the month, we have the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction, the second of three Jupiter-Pluto conjunctions, which actually coincides with the Sun-Mercury conjunction right in the middle of the Mercury retrograde. So that's on the very last day of the month. So we hit the very middle of the Mercury retrograde cycle at the same point, which usually starts to um, resolve or starts to move towards some conclusion at that point of whatever the problem that was set up a week and a half or two earlier by the Mercury retrograde station 
there starts to be some clarity at that point. Um, so there may be some connection between those two events. Yeah, one thing yeah. Um, that sort of came up for me, Austin, when you were I think you mentioned shadow or light when you were talking about the eclipse. And it reminded me that one of the threads that runs through June is this interplay between shadow darkness and then light and sight, because we start the month with Venus conjunct the sun and, and Venus is actually invisible for almost the first half of the month. And just as she, you know, pops out in the morning sky, um, Mercury starts to go into his retrograde phase, which also takes him close to the sun. So between it being a month with two eclipses and a month with two, well, with Mercury and Venus retrograde, which includes this invisibility, you know, going in and out of sight, being seen, not being seen, being in darkness. There are these weird interplays between seeing things and then things going on in the shadowy corners or out of direct sight or things happening in the back rooms that don't become immediately obvious. And I think Everything that we've said, especially what you guys were just talking about, speaks to that at a collective level. But I think it's important to keep that in mind at a personal level that there are things that are obscured for now that will become clear. There are glimpses of light, but there is this general sense of, of a shadow just to do with planets being in darkness and lights being being blocked. Yeah, it's really good. Definitely. Like the, the like on a very simple level, like the um, you know, um, Mercury disappears in the West while Venus reappears in the East during June. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the point of the, the triumph of day in the Northern Hemisphere, the summer solstice, um, is, um, is changed, uh, is changed by the, uh, by there being an annular solar eclipse on that day. Yeah, you're right. There, there's just like, there's a lot of like non metaphorical light and darkness stuff yeah. happening. Like you can just go outside and see the play of yeah. light and darkness. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like that. There's something really poetic in that. I think in the even though it's like actually happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, so, and so the Chris, repeat. what's our elections? Uh, what's our auspicious election for the month? Thank yes. you. I meant to mention that earlier, but this is a good time to mention it. And thank you again for not letting me forget it, as I almost did last month. Uh, because one of the problems is that this year that. Lisa and I ran into when we did our 2020 year ahead electional report, where we picked out one electional chart for each month, is that especially the past few months that we're just getting out of was a really tough period for elections. Um, later this month, we did find one election that we wanted to focus on, which is actually more of a a Mars election, actually. So you might, you may or may not like like this, Austin. I know you're into the planetary elections for different like planetary talismans. Um, but what we wanted to focus on this month was a very brief window where there might be a decent um, Mars election available, and that takes place on June 29th, 2020 at 12.30 a.m. So this is actually a late night chart. Um, let me put the actual election up. So June 29th, basically just after midnight. Oh, let me put that on the screen there. Okay, that is not quite it yet, but we're almost there. So June 29th, about 12:30 at night, whatever your whatever your location is, because we're using local time. So you basically just have to set it for about 12:30 at night, um, and you want to adjust the chart until you have about uh, first first degree or so of Aries rising. 
So what you'll end up with is a night chart, of course, because it's just after midnight with Aries rising, and Mars has just ingressed into Aries into its own sign. Um, and Mars will be in the first whole sign house, conjunct roughly the degree of the ascendant in a night chart and relatively well placed. Um, Jupiter is up in the 10th house in Capricorn. Venus is over in the third house in Gemini, having recently stationed direct, where it's casting a sextile ray backwards to Mars in one of those positive hurling ray examples, like Austin was talking about earlier. Jupiter is up in the 10th, overcoming Mars through a superior sign based square. The moon is in uh, Libra in the seventh whole sign house, and it's applying uh, to a square with Jupiter by degree with an orb. And Venus at five degrees of Gemini is overcoming the moon with a loose sign based reception through a superior sign based trine. So basically, you get um, the two most important planets in the electional chart, which are the ruler of the ascendant and the moon, relatively well placed and not afflicted in this chart. Um, this chart we would recommend as a good Mars election. So anything Martian where you have to take decisive action, um, sometimes you have to do things on your own or independently, uh, actions that requ require bold or sometimes aggressive, but um, probably appropriately aggressive type actions in order to succeed. Um, what are other like really positive Mars type archetypes or actions that you guys would associate with like a well placed Mars? I think that starting, um, you know, if, if I were going to start a new workout regimen, right? Like, okay, I'm going to do whatever x number of push-ups, sit-ups, etc. you know, or I'm going to do this power lifting program. I'm going to do this type of physical discipline which is going to require a lot of work and effort for let's say 40 days and I want to I want a, a specific time to begin. That would probably be something I would want a strong Mars for. Totally like a like a workout regimen or this is like when you're really mm -hmm. going to start something like that cuz Mars can be great for vitality and for those um, bursts of energy that you need in like uh, short periods of concentrated work, um, but especially yeah. if they're over a long period of time, but in short bursts. Right. It's. I mean, Mars on a positive level is very much get up off your ass energy, um, mm -hmm. which can yeah. be really annoying if you're trying to relax. But if you're trying to schedule, you know, tie yourself to, uh, I want to make sure to get up off my ass, you know, x number of times per week and do this thing, then that can be that can be harnessed. That's a strong Mars, right? First decan, right? Which is a double Mars decan. It's in Aries. That's that's literally Conor McGregor's Mars is zero Aries, <laughs> right? It and it's it, yeah. Go ahead, Kelly. I was going to say it feels like this would be a great chart if you had to make a decision or you've been thinking about something and you want to, um, you know, take action. Um, that idea. When even it, what the feeling I got was like if you wanted to elect a time where you needed to have an interaction with someone where you wanted to really advocate for yourself or stand up for yourself. Not so much that I want you to get into a fight, but this could help someone who isn't very good at being decisive or putting their own needs first, I guess. Definitely. I love that. That's a really good um, point. It would be a good manifestation of a chart like this. Um, yeah, so obviously it's in the middle of a Mercury retrograde, so it's like you can't avoid that because the Mercury retrograde, as we said, the shadow begins on like the first of June, and Mercury is already stationary retrograde by the middle of the month. 
So if that's like a major consideration or if that's hitting your chart in a weird way, that could be problematic and not something you want to do. But if you do want to focus on Mars, one of the things that's nice about this is, is this is before the Mars retrograde and it's also not in its shadow yet. So Mars is actually moving fast. And if you look at the little readout in the bottom right corner that I have for my layout in Solar Fire, Mars is actually the only planet that's moving fast. Um, and is not retrograde or not slow because it's coming off of a, a retrograde station. So that's why we wanted to focus on Mars at this point. Um, and also because if you do it in this short time span at the very end of June, it's before Saturn has retrograded back into Capricorn, at which point it's going to be overcoming Mars through a superior sign-based square and becomes very prominent in the 10th house. So the one thing this chart's probably not great for is with Saturn in the 11th house in a night chart, even though it's somewhat mitigated due to being an Aquarius in its own sign and it's also got some nice close configurations with Venus and Jupiter, um, the part where you would probably struggle with a little bit might be groups and friends or alliances with Saturn in the 11th and a night chart, but that's almost appropriate since we're talking about like a Mars, a bold sort of Mars and Aries type chart to begin with. Which is much better for individual action than necessarily like collective or group action to begin with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, so, with the the Saturn Mars sextile, I would say that in the Libra Moon and all that, there is a there is some potential to coordinate ferocious individual action with um, a larger program, mm -hmm. um, but the the like the the focus of it is definitely individual action definitely yeah good point especially with the the libra moon and yeah like you were saying so this is our auspicious election for uh the one we wanted to highlight for this month lisa and i are about to get together later today i think and record our monthly auspicious elections podcast which is a 45 minute podcast where we're going to outline four or five auspicious electional charts for the month of june which are then released to subscribers and patrons who are on the $5 tier, the $10 tier, and, and up through our page on Patreon. So you can find out more information about that at patreon.com slash the astrology podcast. And uh, yeah, I think that's it for the auspicious election. So thanks to Lisa for finding that, especially this month, as well as shout out. I don't know if I gave her a proper shout out for giving a great couple of lectures at Norwalk and having a successful conference, giving a lecture on zodiac releasing subperiods and a lecture on weird chart placements and, and the astrology of the weird, which is like a really fun topic um, that I'd recommend checking out uh, if you're looking for Norwak recordings to, to watch. Yeah, I'm super excited to see the presentation and the chart examples, especially on the astrology of the weird. That That's very intriguing. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've got one of them. One of the lectures. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll let you go. Okay, I was just going to say boy, like I have the equivalent of a I have the listening equivalent of a long reading list um from Norwak based on there are a number of talks that were, you know, um met with uh, thunder they were clearly met with thunderous applause and I need to catch up. Yeah, totally. And I'm trying to like normally I, I you know, you won't, you can only see a number of of lectures even if you're attending a live conference. Mm -hmm. And I always say, like, I'll get the recordings afterwards or whatever, and then I I rarely do. 
This time, though, I'm trying to have some discipline since I know I have that two-week window to watch them, and I'm trying to watch at least one lecture a day. And I know that AFAN or Norwalk itself is organizing some watch parties where you can join a group of people if you're an attendee and watch some of them live with other people and engage in the chat and stuff like that. Um, Laura did say on the episode we recorded yesterday, the organizer of Norwalk, that she's thinking about opening it up to buy like a, a pass in order to have that same two-week window that attendees had to watch, be able to watch all of the, the lectures during a two-week period. So I'm hoping that she puts out an announcement about that soon. Otherwise, you can buy the audio, which comes with the PowerPoint slides through uh, the Norwalk website, which is norwalk.net. All right, guys. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our forecast for June, which is a little bit of a bummer because there's a bit of a cliffhanger, and it, it always is. But this month, Absolutely. especially, it seems like we're just doing like it's like taking um, out of a, a clip, like an old movie reel, where you know a, a film is like just frames or individual pictures that are strung together to create an animation. And it's like each of these months, we're just looking at a single frame. And we kept almost going forward to the next month because we know where some of these frames are headed, but we always have to stop ourselves at, at that point so we don't give too much away for next month. But we'll have to return again four weeks from now to look at the astrology of July. Yeah. Yes. Well, and this one especially, I think that's right, Chris. The um the end of June and the beginning of July are like the same arc. Like we're we're it's very cliffhangery. It's not just a few threads left unresolved. Right. And it's it's obviously by the end of June we're we're transitioning not just in the calendar, because oftentimes the calendar, you know, is is arbitrary. The civil calendar is arbitrary and not tied into the astrological calendar. But for some reason, it lines up really well where the end of June, we do start fully transitioning into the second half of the year and like the second half or part two of the major transits for 2012. Mm. But so, there is, it's, yeah. So stay tuned, more to come on the end of June stuff in early July. <laughs> yes, stay yeah. tuned. All right. And, um, Remember to watch the horoscopes that we did for 2020. Remember to go back and watch our 2020 year ahead forecast if you want an early preview. I'll put links to that at the very end of this YouTube video in the like watch next sort of thing. Otherwise, um, check out Austin's website, which is austincopic.com. Check out Kelly's website, which is kellysastrology.com. Do you, either of you have classes or are you, you're just going to collapse at this point because you've been lecturing and teaching like nonstop for, for weeks now? Do you take a break or something? Um, no. yeah, well, so I, no. I, okay. my classes, my classes run until the end of November. Um, but not all the time. Right. So I have a little bit of, um, uh, a break between sessions after this and yeah, I absolutely tend to collapse. Good. Well, I hope you take a little, little bit of a break. You both did an amazing job at Norwalk and had great, uh, uh, workshop attendance and everything else. You've been hearing rave reviews. Uh, and also great memes. Did I mention the Cosmos and Psycho uh, meme uh, account on Twitter, which both created, both of them must have attended all of your lectures or workshops or something, because they both came out of them with some great astrology memes. I would recommend checking out. I actually didn't yeah, get memed fun. until after my workshop, and I was um, I was very sad um, because I thought maybe I wasn't going to get memed because they were so good. Um, it was yeah. I, I literally laughed out loud at several of them. Yeah, my meme had a cat in it, so I was very, 
very happy about that. Very nice. Very nice. Um, yeah. I do have classes going on in June, but not till the middle of the month. So that's kind of nice. I do have a little bit of time, I realize. You do have classes. Austin, what did you, did you call um, William Lily Willie? Is that what I'm to I understand did. from this meme? Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't mean to, but I, it works for me. Yeah, Big Willie. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, that does totally work. And then Kelly, you had a, a great one when they came out of one of your lectures, which was <laughs> Kelly's. Really? That cat, that cat face gets me every time. That is literally the face of this cat. If you're watching the video version, uh, a very pleasantly like satiated cat uh, getting ready to eat a plate of waffles is exactly how I describe people walking out of Kelly's lectures, especially the lunar phase one, but especially also the uh, the plenary where you opened the conference. Thank you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was a nice addition. I, I really want to uh, acknowledge the effort they put in because it added this funny little beautiful touch. Totally. Yeah. All right. Uh, and Kelly, you said you're doing classes? Yeah. So I've got a four-part training on aspects, which starts June 13, um, June 15, sorry, Monday, June 15. Um, it is part of my ongoing um, Become an Astrologer training program, and there's details about that on the website. I'm also co-teaching a webinar with Frank Clifford on the floating midheaven, and that's going to be uh, Saturday, June 20th, before things get too intense. You're teaching, I'm sorry, you're teaching that, because I know you use whole sign houses, and so you use the floating midheaven. Yeah, I think Frank might use equal houses, so he has a floating midheaven situation too. Okay. Yeah. Got so it. we're going to cool. discuss how we deal with the MC when it's not in the 10th house, basically, and then the IC not being in the fourth. Brilliant. Nice. That's such an important discussion that's important for people that are considering whole sign houses. So I'm glad you're doing that, and that should be great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And Austin, when do your classes start up again? Oh, they're ongoing. They started in April, and they will run until the end of November. I'm just right. doing my two year-long classes. That's right. That's right. Nice. All right, guys. Um, okay. Thanks a lot for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. Um, I always enjoy our, our monthly check-ins, and I look forward to seeing you again next month. Are we still thinking about doing really quickly fixed stars in June? Fixed stars episode, maybe? Kelly, you said you're up for it. Austin, Possibly. still maybe? Yeah, I think we have to discuss well, let's, um, scheduling. Let's talk about it. Okay, yeah. we'll talk about it. Uh, you guys need a break. All right. Thanks, you guys, for joining me today. Thanks to all the people in the chat. You've been awesome. Our 100 Thank you all attendees. for your support. Um, thanks to all the patrons of the Astrology Podcast who support the show each month. I really appreciate you, and you're helping me to keep doing this work and keep expanding the show. And uh, thanks to all the listeners. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Bye, everyone. Take care. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Arena Tudor, Thomas Miller, Christina Caudill, and Bear River. As well as the Astrogold Astrology app, available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also, Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, 
And you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.